This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We will now turn to a discussion of uh, the clinical management challenges associated with the Zika virus. Uh, Mary Wilson, who was up uh, earlier today, will uh, moderate uh, the panel and the Q&A in, in this discussion. Uh, but our first presenter is actually Dr. Chris Barker from the University of California, Davis, where he's an epidemiologist in the Department of Pathology, Microbiology, and Immunology at the School of Veterinary Medicine. And so if I can invite uh, Dr. Barker up. Thank you. So please hold your clinical management questions until later. <laughs> well, I'll leave it down. I hope you can hear me okay. Thank you. So I'll talk a little bit about the mosquito in terms of its biology as well as control. I think I'm sorry about my scheduling today, but I had to miss some of the earlier talks. I imagine you've seen something along these lines. Uh, maybe not. I'm seeing... Oh, some have. Okay, great. So um, right now what we're really talking about in the Americas, we think, is a human-mosquito-human cycle. We're talking a lot about Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, which are two mosquito species that have been known to vector dengue and chikungunya for some years now. And uh, there is a sylvatic cycle. Actually, this is really how it was first found. Um, was in monkeys in, in the Zika forest in Uganda. I imagine you may have heard that already. Uh, in, the, in the Americas, we don't yet know what potential role monkeys might play, but at this point, we're quite sure that urban cycles are alive and well in much of the Americas, and humans and some of the mosquito species we're talking about uh, are probably all that's needed to sustain it. First thing to think about is that there are many species of mosquitoes. I'm finding as you talk to uh, various people about mosquito-borne viruses, a lot of people sort of think of them as one thing. So even here in California, these are some of our more important species. Uh, for West Nile and St. Louis encephalitis viruses, we actually have had um, two species mainly, Culex tarsalis and Culex quinquefasciatus as well as Culex pipiens, which is a sister species of Quinquefasciatus that vector those viruses. We have historical malaria vectors, Anopheles freeborni, that come out of the rice and other wetland areas every year and cause a lot of biting problems, but they don't really transmit uh, malaria anymore because the parasites aren't here. Oh, great. Someone turned it on. Uh, and we also have dog heartworm vectors, Aedes cerensis, which can be confused, at least in terms of eggs. Uh, uh, and to some extent, they, they can be confused even as adult biting mosquitoes because they bite during the day like these other two species. So Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus um, are the main two vectors, as far as we know, of Zika virus as well as dengue and chikungunya virus. A uh, study just came out this past week on Culex quinquefasciatus just saying that that was a competent vector in the laboratory, so I just wanted to mention that. There's a lot we don't know yet about the California species or others elsewhere in the world because Zika was a low-profile problem in the past, so a lot of work to be done just to figure out what the full vector range will be. The mosquitoes, Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, are primarily container-breeding mosquitoes, so they breed in habitats that are in our backyards. You can see a good sampling of them there. It's really anything that will hold water, from flower pots to 
inverted kiddie pools, any small plastic containers, lawn drains. Uh, these mosquitoes are good at finding them. Uh, they get around the world this way as well. They complete their life cycle in very small amounts of water. There have been experiments that have shown that even as little as one millimeter of water can allow the mosquitoes to develop. So as long as there's water for long enough for at least, say, a week or so in midsummer for the mosquito to complete its development, these mosquitoes can, can live in that water and produce more of themselves. The mosquito itself is quite small. Here's the adult mosquito compared to a quarter. So it's about a quarter of an inch long. And in California, we've had a number of new problems with these species in recent years. So the Asian tiger mosquito here, Aedes albopictus, was found in Los Angeles in 2011. It had been found in the past at various times and was thought to be locally eradicated, largely associated with cargo shipments that came in infested with these mosquitoes. Uh, but since 2011, it's been only spreading into new areas. So Part of its new detections in places where it might have been for a little while, and then others are evidence of new spread. Aedes aegypti also was detected in the Central Valley in Fresno and Madeira, and then, as many of you probably know, also here in San Mateo County in 2013. It has been detected since that time. We don't seem to be doing a great job of eradicating these species. And then there's Aedes notoscriptus, which has gotten much lower billing. It's an Australian virus vector. Um, it's found in parts of L.A. now, and just because of the new problems with these, primarily, this one's gotten a lot less attention, uh, but that one's also still there in, in Los Angeles. We know quite a bit about where these mosquitoes have been found globally, um, and like I mentioned, the new detections in California are new, but these have been found throughout the tropics for quite some time. Uh, during yellow fever eradication campaigns into the 1960s, actually Aedes aegypti in particular was pushed back from many of the areas where it is now. So uh, Brazil had eradication of Aedes aegypti. We probably wouldn't be talking about the Zika outbreak if the eradication had held, but part of the story of dengue's emergence over recent decades has been that this mosquito has been gradually moving back into areas that are suitable due to the rollback of some of the eradication campaigns. Here's what the suitability maps look like. I had Moritz Kramer, uh, he's a colleague at Oxford. He, he did this study on suitability globally. This is what his map looks like for California. Indicates at least in terms of temperature and uh, other climate related variables, much of California is quite suitable for these species. It's, it's the places that are generally the warmest. So Southern California, some of the desert communities, and then also the Central Valley are best. Uh, Bay Area is moderately suitable. Uh, Aedes albopictus also quite suitable in the northern Central Valley, largely driven by more water in the northern end of the state based on the estimates. Um, but again, these are global estimates applied to California. So I wanted to just mention some of what we're doing here in California to, to address Zika concerns. Uh, we work a lot with the, with the Mosquito and Vector Control Association of California, which is a network of local mosquito and vector control agencies at city to county levels throughout the state, as well as the California Department of Public Health, which has a vector-borne disease section, a viral and rickettsial diseases laboratory that uh, deal with all issues related to mosquito-borne viruses, and Zika just being the latest one of those. Uh, and then our Davis Arbovirus Research and Training Lab, which I co-direct with my colleague, Lark Coffeyus, here in the audience and covers much of the virology aspects of what we do. So these agencies throughout the state are tracking the spread of these vectors. So 
again, Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus and really any other container breeding Aedes should be picked up in these traps. There are adult traps that have a lure that has a scent much like the scent of a host, a human, that attract the, the female mosquitoes, also males because they also mate near the host. And then they fly to these traps and get sucked in by a fan and then collect it over uh, days to a week. And then they can count those mosquitoes to figure out where they are. Uh, because they lay eggs in containers, you can also simply put out cups lined with paper and then the mosquitoes will lay eggs on the paper. You can collect those eggs and know where the mosquitoes are. And then there are these lethal ovatraps. So this is CDC's autocidal gravid ovatrap, and that's a fancy way of saying it's a, it's a, an egg-laying female trap that where the mosquitoes come, they fly in to lay their eggs, they get stuck on sticky paper inside, you can count them, but in so doing, you're not contributing to their reproduction in any way, so it kills the female mosquito. In our lab in Davis, we're also um, doing surveillance for Zika virus uh, through RT-PCR testing, not unlike what you've heard about already today, but we're testing mosquitoes. So we're not testing human samples or blood bank samples or anything like that. We're testing uh, mosquito samples from around the state. The first line of uh, detection is always the human cases. So really the mosquito surveillance depends a lot on uh, follow-up after detection of human cases potentially. So we just got that online in February. We also have a way of doing a protein-based testing for the eggs. So you can imagine looking at mosquito eggs is not so easy to tell which species it is. And so our lab offers a new protein-based test where they can send in egg samples. We can test for those, which doesn't necessitate uh, rearing the mosquitoes and waiting until they become adults to know what they are. Um, we also have the data systems to back this up, the California Surveillance Gateway. And then uh, from that come maps. Uh, as well as reports to CDPH, MVCAC, and CDC. So if you look at the national maps for where arboviruses, including West Nile virus and Zika virus, are being found, those come from our underlying gateway system, and that's used by these agencies. And the dark areas sort of show you where those mosquito control agencies are. We're also doing work on mapping these Zika virus vectors. So one place you can go to see our live data in our gateway is this maps.calserve.org slash invasive. Um, that's uh, a map where you can click on individual cities and you can find out how many detections there have been and when surveillance was started. Um, we've, we've gotten almost complete with the data. There are occasional cities that might be missing, but it, it's pretty representative of where these vectors are found in the state, where blue is the Asian tiger mosquito, red is Aedes aegypti, and purple is where they're finding both. You can see here San Diego where they're finding both. Just mentioned the Menlo Park case since we're in the Bay Area. Um, there have been detections every year through 2015. It's still a little early to have found them in Menlo Park this year. The population so far appears to be small. Um, and if you want more local info, you can contact the San Mateo County Mosquito and Vector Control District. I don't, I don't know if anyone's here from there today. I haven't seen anyone yet. But they have more information on what they're finding on their website. One thing to point out is really the limits of these mosquitoes are based on how reproductively suitable they are. And this is work done by uh, my PhD student, Marissa Donnelly, who's also here with us today. And uh, 
what's emerging is sort of a pattern here in the Central Valley where you tend to have, um, in some cases, longer winters, but when it's reproductively viable, it's very viable, so it's very warm in the valley. Here in the Bay Area, you have sort of a, a separate track where you have shorter winters, but overall uh, not great reproductive rates just because of the cool temperatures here, and then you have places here in uh, Brawley and Imperial County that are both hot and with really short winters, so there are lots of Aedes aegypti being found there. So we're planning to work this up as a web-based tool where people can ask questions about their own cities. So control options, I'll hurry through because I know time is getting short, but just to eliminate breeding sources both in your own backyard as well as um, more broadly, larvicides, they do chemically apply insecticides as well as insect growth regulators that limit the growth of the mosquitoes. Adult mosquito control has been really challenging. These mosquitoes are really good at hiding. It's very hard to get into backyards and that's a big problem. So if you have them in an area, it's not very easy to go in and eradicate them at all. Um, other methods that are emerging are really mating-based strategies. Some of you have heard of Oxitech. There's Wolbachia-infected male releases, and those are primarily based on sterile couplings of released male mosquitoes with natural females that result in non-viable offspring. So the idea is to suppress the population that way, and I mentioned lethal ovitraps that kill the mosquitoes. So here's our options for control, just in a Snapshot, personal protection, keep the mosquitoes from biting you. Sounds simple, but that is seemingly a large part of the story as, as to why de dengue outbreaks haven't occurred here is because we have great screening. Um, I wouldn't say repellent use is widespread, but it's a good idea. Um, and then using, uh, wearing long clothing and avoiding mosquito biting. Thank you. Thanks so much. Our next speaker will be Dr. Kirsten Salmin, who's a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences, University of Maternal Fetal Medicine at UCSF. Thanks very much uh, for the introduction. So we're gonna take a turn here from the technical to the clinical. I'm a clinical perinatologist and have been seeing these pregnant women in the office since uh, about December when this news really broke. The Zika virus, uh, as we talked about before lunch, really seems to be kind of a pregnant woman's worst nightmare. Um, it can cause neurologic devastation as best we can tell. It might not be diagnosed until the third trimester. Women can't necessarily avoid it. They don't necessarily know if they've been exposed. So needless to say, women across the world are terrified of this problem. They usually present in the office and say something along the lines of, I traveled or I was in this area. How worried do I need to be? And of course, this question, how worried should I be, really means, you know, what are the probabilities that there's a problem with my baby? If my baby was affected, how bad is it going to be? What's my child going to look like? Uh, and for women who are local here who have not traveled or traveled to areas of very low probability of exposure, the answers are really, at this point, reassuring. Probably the risks are quite low. Uh, of course, we're recommending that women avoid travel where possible, that they try and avoid exposures where possible. Um, so in that population, the, being a clinical perinatologist in this uh, 
epidemic is, is fairly straightforward. Uh, for women who are at risk of exposure, the care is a lot more complicated. And basically, at this point, what we are focused on is assessing and helping women understand their risk and providing counseling and offering options in the context of very uncertain outcomes because we really have no clinical care to help ameliorate the impacts of Zika virus in pregnancy. Uh, offering this type of counseling in areas of great uncertainty during pregnancy is not new. People have mentioned rubella. There are many other viruses and other circumstances that create a great deal of clinical uncertainty during pregnancy, but we usually have some data. Here in the context of Zika virus, we have very little data to help us give this counseling. But we do our best. And as we help women explore this question, how worried should I be? They really need to understand a couple of things. Firstly, was I infected? Next, was the baby infected? And if the baby was infected, how seriously injured is he or she going to be? And when will we know? At this point, we're using screening algorithms as recommended by the CDC and other organizations to do our best to try and help screen these women. So to tackle this first question, was I infected? It's quite difficult to be uh, certain about this. Um, women, again, who did not travel and weren't in areas of epidemic Zika infections probably are at very low risk. However, for women that did travel, infections are usually uh, asymptomatic. Um, and so testing is imperative. At this point, we're recommending testing for women who have traveled uh, to endemic areas so that they can be screened. And Dr. Chu will speak to the specifics of this testing later. Um, at this point, there's blood testing for genetic evidence of Zika virus infections that can be done during acute infections, and blood testing for anti-Zika IgM antibodies after an exposure. However, false negatives and false positives can occur. Um, and at this point, anti-Zika IgG testing is not clinically available to help us understand risk of uh, more distant exposures. So next question, was my baby infected? Again, we really are quite uncertain. There's the option to perform amniocentesis, which can test for Zika virus um, in amniotic fluid. However, that is associated with the risk of pregnancy loss. And at this point, we really are quite uncertain what number of infected fetuses will have a positive amniocentesis. And on the flip side, what number of women who may have a positive amniocentesis would actually have an affected fetus, meaning a fetus with neurologic injury. Um, at this juncture, we're really using amniocentesis only in the context of positive IgM testing or with significant ultrasound findings and not as a primary screening technique. Uh, other techniques to help understand if a baby was infected, our primary tool at this point is ultrasound. Um, ultrasound is used very commonly and is very widely available here in resource-rich settings, perhaps less so in very resource-poor settings, as has been mentioned previously today. Um, ultrasound can identify uh, abnormalities, including microcephaly, other brain abnormalities, calcifications, which were mentioned earlier, the enlargement of the ventricles, which has been um, associated with the Zika virus. Um, however, these findings may very well not show up until late in the third trimester. Um, we know this from other uh, conditions that cause microcephaly and brain injury that throughout pregnancy, when brain development is occurring, injury can occur, and as a consequence, we may not see these findings until later in, in, in pregnancy. Additionally, the diagnosis of microcephaly prenatally is really not made with certainty until the head size is less than four to five standard deviations below the gestational age mean. 
uh, it is suspected at two to three standard deviations below the mean, but because ultrasound is very strongly affected by maternal body habitus, fetal position, ultrasound technique, uh, the diagnosis is quite uh, stringent. We also have fetal brain MRI at our disposal to try and help us evaluate. This is a very specialized technique done in very specialized centers, but will likely become part of our armamentarium to evaluate the fetus. Of course, we can't be certain that a fetus was infected. We can only be suspicious based on the findings that that we have. So when a woman asks, how sure are we? The answer, unfortunately, largely needs to be, I don't really know. Again, if the baby was infected, how seriously injured will he or she be? And when will we know? And predicting the degree of injury is quite difficult unless there are severe brain abnormalities, which we know portend very poor neurologic prognoses. We know this from other areas in maternal fetal medicine that when there are very severe brain findings, the probability of a poor neurologic outcome is very high. However, in other circumstances, we really can't be certain of how seriously injured a baby would be and when we would know. And again, these findings seem to occur in the third trimester of pregnancy Um, after a woman has often undergone routine fetal anatomic surveillance. So to summarize, when a woman asks how worried should we be, this is what we are telling women to the best of our ability. Women who have not been in affected areas are likely at very low risk, although, as we've discussed briefly, having a sexual partner who was in an affected area may increase this risk to some degree. Women with negative blood testing for Zika IgM and normal fetal ultrasounds seem likely to probably have normal outcomes. There's a great deal of uncertainty about women who test positive for Zika IgM and who have no evidence of fetal abnormalities. We really don't know what to tell these women about their risk. And women whose fetuses have significant brain brain abnormalities on ultrasound are at very high risk of having children with serious neurologic disability, regardless of the cause. So what can we do? The options from a management perspective are really quite limited. Um, Women who are identified as having abnormalities have two choices. They can take a wait-and-see approach, or they have the option, potentially, of pregnancy termination. Uh, A decision about this requires very, very, very careful counseling at great length with care to evaluate values, preferences, perspectives on quality of life, taking great care to explain numeracy, probability, and the uncertain outcomes that can be associated with these and other neurologic conditions. For uh, women who choose a wait-and-see approach, the recommendation at this point is for serial fetal ultrasounds to help follow and evaluate risk, fetal surveillance given the risk of uh, stillbirth that we've mentioned, and education. And I would be remiss if I didn't briefly mention the issue of pregnancy termination, both legality and access. In the Bay Area, we have fairly broad access to termination services, and here at UCSF, the agreement of our providers has been that in circumstances where we are suspicious of severe neurologic injury, even into the third trimester of pregnancy, there are providers who are willing to perform terminations of pregnancy. But this is not at all the case throughout the world, and advocacy for access and legal uh, termination of pregnancy is really perhaps one of the most critical clinical pieces of preparedness for this and other uh, outbreaks. Um, And then, of course, access to family planning in addition to uh, services is critically important. The numbers of providers who are willing to provide this service are woefully inept for what might be coming down the pipeline. So, in summary, 
as we think about how to prepare for the Zika virus and as we have prepared here at UCSF, what we know is that until interventions, including vaccination and treatment, are available, our necessary resources really include personnel who can gather the data that we need to guide counseling. We need personnel who are able to provide the appropriate counseling, which takes a great deal of time and a great deal of energy for this patient population. We need safe legal access to pregnancy termination for those women whose fetuses have severe neurologic abnormalities identified in late pregnancy. And we need adequate social and medical services to assist those families who are raising children with considerable special needs. Thanks very much. Our next speaker will be Dr. Margaret Feeney, Chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases and Global Health at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital. Thank you. Um, so as Everyone in this audience knows the Zika <clears throat> outbreak first came to attention due to this sharp spike in microcephaly cases um, that was tightly clustered in this region of Brazil, um, which has proven to be the canary in the coal mine for what is becoming a much larger and spreading outbreak. Um, microcephaly uh, is defined as a head size less than the third percentile uh, at birth. And I apologize for the repetitiveness of some of these slides. Um, Microcephaly, with or without intracranial calcifications, has been associated with a, a number of different congenital infections, including CMV and toxo. Um, but in the setting of this Brazil cluster, these were quickly ruled out. Uh, and initially, we didn't know very much uh, about the pathophysiology of the illness due to limited um, ability to do um, imaging and biologic testing in that setting. Uh, it was known from a few case reports that Zika was isolated from the amniotic fluid of women with microcephalic infants. Uh, but the first very careful description came just last month in the New England Journal from uh, this, the study of a 25-year-old European woman who had been living in Brazil at the time uh, and contracted Zika in week 13 of her pregnancy. Uh, she had a few ultrasounds performed while in Brazil that were normal, but when she returned to Europe, at week 28, she had an ultrasound which showed microcephaly and severe calcifications of both the brain and the placenta. Uh, she requested termination of her pregnancy, uh, which was done, and an autopsy was performed. And the brain from the infant uh, was found to be very, very small, less than 1% in mass, and it had almost complete agyria. So that means um, that the normal folds of the brain do not develop. It has a smooth-looking cortex and the sylvian fissures were wide open on both sides. The infant also had hydrocephalus and extensive calcifications both in the cortex and in the subcortical white matter. Uh, RT-PCR for Zika was done in the brain tissue and was positive, uh, and eventually um, they sequenced the full Zika genome from the brain tissue. Electron microscopy also showed particles, spiral particles in the brain that were consistent with Zika. 
But at the population level, we had very little idea of what the spectrum of disease was or what the window of vulnerability was. Uh, and most of the information that we have on that actually came from a, a report that was just released Friday night in the New England Journal. This was a very fortuitous situation where the study group had a dengue surveillance project where they were studying mother and infant pairs uh, exposed to the dengue virus. And this is on site at the Oscar Cruz Foundation where they have um, a, a flavivirus laboratory on site. So they were able to do screening for flavoviruses. So they adapted their protocol so that from February to September to February, they enrolled any woman who was pregnant and presented with a rash. And they tested blood and urine for Zika virus by RT-PCR. So of 88 women that were enrolled during this time, 72 tested positive for Zika. And they had their acute infection anywhere between week five and week 38 of gestation. The maternal illnesses were pretty mild and generally, um, as described in, in prior epidemiologic reports, and 42 of these women had ultrasounds. Of these 42, abnormalities have been seen in 12 of these infants, uh, including two fetal deaths uh, that occurred at 36 and 38 weeks gestation. Also, microcephaly, or IUGR with or without microcephaly in five infants. And this is slightly different from what has been reported in the past, where um, previously we had heard about asymmetric microcephaly, where the head is very small, but the growth of the body is normal in this cohort generally microcephaly was seen in the context of IUGR so that the entire fetal, um, fetal development was, was somewhat smaller, and this may be a sign of placental insufficiency. Um, calcifications or other CNS anomalies were seen in seven infants, and decreased amniotic fluid volume or cord flow were observed also in seven infants, which could be an additional sign of placental insufficiency. So... One of the ways in which I think this study is very, very valuable is it's our first glimpse at how uh, the fetal outcomes relate to the week of gestation at which the infant was infected. So there's a wide spectrum of weeks when the infection was first detected. The, blue, the dark blue bars are those infants who were affected. So we see infants across the, the developmental window that are affected. Um, we could take some optimism from the fact that 70% of these infants are not infected. However, at this point, only eight of these infants have been born, so they're getting serial ultrasounds, and it could be that additional infants will develop anomalies on further screening. With respect to microcephaly, um, the symbols probably don't show very well, but uh, first trimester infections are denoted by squares, and second trimester infections are denoted by circles. And we see that the kids that are falling off of the head growth curves are those that were infected during the first or second trimester. However, very soberingly, I think, we are also seeing a lot of major uh, anomalies in infants who had documented, PCR-documented infection quite late in pregnancy, including two fetal deaths, um, IUGR with microcephaly, and cerebral calcifications. So uh, I think the question is a small sample, but the question is still open of what the developmental window of vul vulnerability is, and it may actually be quite, quite extensive. Uh, in addition to the brain anomalies, the only ma other major anomaly that has been reported so far is ocular development anomalies. Amongst 29 infants that were seen in Bahia, Brazil, 35% had ocular abnormalities on ophthalmic exam. Most commonly, these were uh, 
pigment modeling of the retina and chorioretinal atrophy, optic nerve abnormalities, coloboma, and lens subluxation. Uh, and just to show you three examples here, I am definitely not an ophthalmologist, but uh, just you can see that the, the abnormalities extend from the somewhat subtle to the extremely dramatic, um, with these colobomas essentially representing holes in the development of the retina, where there is no retinal tissue. So what does this mean for those of us who are seeing infants in, in the clinical setting? Um, testing is recommended for two populations of infants, basically those who uh, present with microcephaly and or intracranial calcifications, uh, and then are found on questioning to have a mother who may have been exposed through travel. Uh, and secondarily, infants born to mothers who were known to have had an exposure or who had inconclusive testing during pregnancy. Uh, and I'll, I'll defer the specifics of clinical testing to Dr. Chu, but uh, at, at present, what, what the CDC is recommending is that we do Zika virus RNA, IgM, and neutralizing antibodies, as well as dengue antibodies due to the cross-reactivity issue. Um, this should be done on the serum and, if obtained, on the CSF. Uh, where possible, they recommend histopathologic testing of the placenta and the cord with Zika-specific stains and PCRs where possible. And if the mother has not been previously tested, the mother should be tested as well. So evaluation of all infants with possible congenital Zika should include uh, an exam with measurement of growth parameters, a head ultrasound if, unless it was normal in the third trimester, as well as neurodevelopmental assessment and a hearing and eye exam. And then for those infants who have microcephaly or evidence of intracranial calcifications, uh, it is also recommended that they see a clinical geneticist to rule out other potential causes for the microcephaly. Uh, and be evaluated for TORCH infections, which is an acronym that pediatricians use uh, for other congenital infections, uh, such as toxoplasmosis and CMV, that are associated with um, intracranial calcifications and microcephaly. Uh, and lastly, these infants should be seen by pediatric neurology and have an MRI uh, and possibly EEG as well. Uh, in terms of follow-up, uh, it is essential that these cases be reported to the state and local health department. They all should have an ophthalmologic exam and follow-up uh, if any abnormalities are seen, as well as follow-up of any hearing abnormalities and repeat hearing at six months. Uh, and they should have their head, head circumference and developmental milestones carefully tracked with referral as needed to neurology and developmental specialists. So just to summarize, um, prenatal infection with Zika can result in a, a wide spectrum of brain and ocular malformations. The most clinically evident of these is microcephaly, but that may just be the tip of an iceberg. It's, it's a little difficult to say at this point. Uh, the proportion of congenitally infected infants with abnormalities is unknown, but it, it appears that it may be actually quite high, uh, and the full spectrum of pediatric disease is something that we definitely need to get a better handle on. Uh, as is the exact developmental window of vulnerability. Uh, and then additional potential risks that may be posed by postnatal infection, acquisition of, of Zika during infancy or early childhood or via breast milk are unknown. And it has been shown that uh, Zika can be present in breast milk, although uh, that has not been established as a route of transmission yet. Thank you.
pretty sobering um, findings we're hearing. Our next speaker is Dr. Michael Wilson, Assistant Professor in the Department of Neurology and Division of Multiple Sclerosis and Neuroinflammation at UCSF. Thank you. So I'm here to talk today about uh, the reports of the correlation between uh, increased incidence of Guillain-Barre syndrome and, and Zika virus. So just to define Guillain-Barre first, um, I think it's not a very well-recognized uh, syndrome. So Guillain-Barre is characterized, it's a, an acute monophasic paralyzing illness um, that is due to impaired conduction along the peripheral nerves typically due to demyelination, but that's not always the case. Um, the overall global incidence is about one to two people per 100,000 per year. It's a, a syndrome that occurs worldwide. Uh, it has a male to female uh, predominance. All age groups are affected, but it is more commonly seen uh, as, as one gets older. Mortality is typically under 5%, um, and when people do die, it's typically due to uh, autonomic uh, dysfunction, uh, so cardiac and uh, blood pressure uh, difficulties, and, as well as res respiratory failure. Um, there are several flavors of Guillain-Barre. Um, the typical syndrome that most of us think about is an ascending paralysis starting in the feet, um, but it, it can present uh, in other ways as well with a predominant with a facial and, and uh, upper extremity weakness. Um, so what causes Guillain-Barre? So we don't really know, but, but what we do know is that it's typically triggered um, by, by a preceding febrile illness. Um, and there have been numerous uh, uh, infections that have been associated with it. Probably the best characterized is uh, Campylobacter jejuni, which causes a gastrointestinal disease. Um, but then there, have been, there are a number of other uh, bacteria as well as viruses. Um, and... And then another trigger is, uh, um, to some degree, uh, vaccination. So there's a report in 1976, a swine flu um, uh, vaccine had a, a slight uptick of uh, Guillain-Barre cases. And yellow fever, another flavivirus uh, vaccination, has been associated with a risk for Guillain-Barre. Um, so the way it can, Guillain-Barre typically presents is with a mostly symmetric uh, muscle weakness. And as I said, it typically starts in the legs, but doesn't have to. Um, patients can also frequently complain of both pain and numbness and tingling in the hands and feet, but it's not, um, but, but when you actually examine people and do electrical studies, the sensory involvement is, is typically either absent or, or much outweighed by the motor findings. Um, the, the symptoms progress, can progress quite quickly over hours and, and certainly over days. Um, and then another hallmark on exam is the lack or very depressed uh, deep tendon reflexes. About 10 to 30 percent of patients develop respiratory weakness, um, and that again is a, a leading cause of mortality in this syndrome. And then dysautonomia is another um, uh, feature of this syndrome that requires very close uh, monitoring. Um, so how do you diagnose it? Um, so first, it's, it's largely a clinical diagnosis in the sense that someone needs to present in this typical fashion um, over a typical timeline. Um, in at least two-thirds of cases, there is this history of a preceding febrile illness. Um, and then there's a classic um, 
cerebrospinal fluid pattern that one finds. So the lack of uh, inflammation in the spinal fluid is defined by uh, a lack of having any increased number of white blood cells, but, but, but having uh, elevated protein level in the CSF. Um, you can also confirm the diagnosis with electrical studies. And in, in some, especially some variants of Guillain-Barre, you'll see uh, certain serologic um, findings, but this, those, are not, those antibody findings are not required to make the diagnosis. How do you treat it? Um, so Guillain-Barre is, is very well treated, typically with immunotherapy, and the standby is usually a pooled immunoglobulins, um, and in some centers, uh, plasma exchange can be used. And then, again, uh, very close uh, supportive care. About a third of these patients end up in the ICU for at least some period of time for close monitoring and, and possibly mechanical ventilation. So Zika and Guillain-Barre. So um, there've been, there's only one published paper that we'll, we'll talk about in a sec, but there, there have been uh, a number of in, in a number of the countries in Latin America where there have been outbreaks, there have been coincident spikes in the number of cases of Guillain-Barre. So in Brazil, there's been a 20% increase in cases um, from 2014 to 2015, and those have been mostly concentrated in the areas where uh, the virus has been most prevalent. In El Salvador, they've seen 104 cases of Guillain-Barre uh, in, in December and January, whereas they typically see about 170 per year. Uh, in Colombia, again, over a five-week period, instead of seeing about an average of 25 cases, they've seen 86. And similarly, there's been a, 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 an uptick in, in Venezuela as well. Um, so this was a paper that just came out in The Lancet, uh, which is looking back at uh, the before this Latin American outbreak, the largest outbreak of, of Zika virus, which was in uh, French Polynesia from the end of 2013, beginning of 2014. And they did a case control study looking at um, Guillain-Barre syndrome and its relationship with the, with the Zika uh, outbreak there. And so typically in French Polynesia, they see about three to 10 cases annually. And in this case control study, they looked at 42 cases that presented over about a six-month period. Um, again, as, as we've mentioned, about 74% of the patients were men, and the typical age of onset was at 42. And they had, as part of the controls, they had uh, two different control groups. So one group of 98 patients who were, had non-febrile illnesses who were matched for age, sex, and, and residence. And then another group of RT-PCR proven Zika virus infected patients who lacked neurologic symptoms. And so this is just uh, a graph showing uh, the incidence over time in the, the light bars of the Zika, of Zika virus cases, and then in the red uh, showing the, the Guillain-Barre cases. And you can see one that they, they go, both go up together, but then you also get a sense that the Guillain-Barre cases start to spike um, days after uh, the uh, Zika virus outbreak started. So again, that, that's suggestive that um, thinking about this infectious trigger of a week to two weeks to three weeks later, um, developing the motor symptoms, um, that, that would fit. Um, so what they found was when they compared the cases to the non-febrile control group was that 93% of the, of the Guillain-Barre cases were IgM positive for Zika virus, whereas only 17% in the non-febrile control group were IgM positive. Um, they were the 
they they did not do RT-PCR testing on the Guillain-Barre cases. They, they were remote samples, and Zika people are only viremic for about five days. So they weren't able to, 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 to look um, accurately at that. Um, suffice, it, suffice it to say, though, it's 93% IgM positive, and 100% of the cases had neutralizing antibodies to Zika virus, again, compared to about half of the non-febrile controls. The median interval between the development of the viral syndrome and Guillain-Barre was about six days, and then there was a very rapid progression um, to the symptom nadir. So about six days after onset, people really uh, bottomed out in terms of the degree of weakness. Um, the nerve conduction studies um, found that there was um, that this again, subtype of Guillain-Barre was most consistent with this acute motor axonal neuropathy. That's a, a subtype that's most commonly associated with Campylobacter. Um, they looked, they did serologies for Campylobacter in this cohort, and it was nobody had uh, antibodies to Campylobacter. Um, about 38% of the patients required intensive care. A third require, a third of all patients required uh, respiratory support. But fortunately, all patients survived. And at about three, at three months uh, follow-up, 60% uh, of the patients were ambulatory without assistance. So the incidence that they estimated was about 0.24 cases per 1,000 Zika virus infections. And that's right at the, the low end of the range for the Campylobacter incidence that's been measured uh, many times. So it, it fits with a known uh, trigger for uh, Guillain-Barre. Um, importantly, they did look at uh, dengue serologies across the case case cohort and uh, both control groups, and those were similar. They were statistically um, similar across the three groups. I think that's important, especially um, for the Guillain-Barre cases, since they're depending on serology. It doesn't look like um, these were false positives that were cross-reactive uh, dengue cases. They look like true uh, Zika cases. Um, so to summarize, it does appear, but it's, you know, there's still a lot to be, to be studied here, that there may be an increased incidence of uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome in areas uh, where there have been Zika virus outbreaks. Um, the link between the two is still unclear, and obviously we need um, good studies like the, the one in French Polynesia to really nail this down better. Um, and it, just also to note, in addition to the Guillain-Barre syndrome, there have been case reports of uh, Zika virus causing uh, other uh, uh, neurologic syndromes in adults. So again, scattered reports of meningitis, encephalitis, and myelitis. Um, those, again, these are unusual enough that uh, they haven't been studied uh, rigorously, but that's, again, something to, to be aware of. Next speaker is Dr. Peter Chin Hong, who is a professor of medicine, and um, he specializes in infectious diseases and particularly infections in immunocompromised hosts. Thanks for having me here. So today I'm going to speak about uh, Zika virus and the specter of other 
uh, like infections in immunocompromised patients. When we in uh, transplant ID hear about a new uh, pathogen or an emerging pathogen, we not only think about the impact on immunocompromised patients, um, but we also think about upstream the impact on, on donors. So I'll spend a few minutes talking about the impact on organ and tissue donation as well because of, the, of this virus. So let's talk first about uh, immunocompromised patients. And, you know, what I've done is really uh, do a lot of uh, compare and contrast because we don't have a lot of information about Zika, but we do have some information on the other viruses that have been uh, uh, better studied and we have more clinical experience with them. So, of course, um, you know, with, with dengue, the, which is another flavivirus that we talked about, same vector, uh, a little bit more fever and, and myalgias in presentation. Um, there have been about more than 40 published cases, so not many uh, in the immunocompromised host population, in, in transplant patients in particular. But there's no evidence that uh, there's an increase in severity or in incidence of cases because of the immu immunocompromised state. <clears throat> With chikungunya, another flavivirus that we talked about, um, it's interesting that there is uh, a significant uh, a link with Guillain-Barre as well, although not uh, quite as striking as with Zika. And again, no increased incidence in severity or incidence in immunocompromised patients. But when you look at uh, more uh, neurotropic viruses like West Nile virus, um, which is a flavivirus as well, different vector, uh, there's a, a higher incidence of... Uh, a neuroinvasive disease, and, and that's probably the virus that we fear most in the transplant ID and immunocompromised host population because there's probably a, an increase in odds of around two to three, not in, only in terms of uh, incidence, but also in terms of severity in our immunocompromised host population. So although we don't know, we haven't really seen, apart from case reports of, of you know, encephalitis, but certainly a lot of Guillain-Barre and in, in Zika-linked cases, we don't know really the full spectrum of impact of, of Zika on transplant patients. And I think it's interesting to compare and contrast Zika with CMB. Um, you know, it, it is similar. In t it's a different virus family, of course, um, but very interesting uh, similarities in terms of neuropresentations. And of course, with CMB in, in transplant patients and immunocompromised patients, uh, there is a, a very known... Um, Increase in severity, it, it affects a lot more uh, organs, uh, colitis, uh, retinitis in HIV patients, uh, pneumonitis. Um, that, you know, that's, that, that's an also an interesting model of analogy that we have uh, with this virus. So the next few minutes, I'm really going to talk about the impact of the virus on, on, on donors, because we think about donors because, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, transplant organs are regulated not by the FDA, but by the OPTN, which is this nonprofit organization. So the rules are a little bit different from tissue, which I'll compare and contrast with you. So the OPTN uh, regulations state that when we suspect an infection in a donor, potential donor, we have to consent the transplant recipient appropriately. And right now there's a lot of discussion in the transplant community about how we should really approach uh, patient consent since the, the, the potential number of patients potentially exposed to Zika is, is large, donors that is, and um, you know, that leads to what kinds of diagnostics we need to, to do. And, and, and the big worry, of course, is whether or not we're going to discard 
uh, organs because of fear rather than uh, for those that are truly infected. So you can see that um, as we began uh, having a network of reporting back to the UNOS and OPTN about potential donor-derived cases of any infectious agent and malignancy, you can see that those numbers are increasing over time. So there's increasing sensitivity to potential donor-derived infections. So when you look at what the current guidelines are, and the, these are constantly being updated. In fact, the FDA guidelines for tissue donation have just been updated last week and uh, a few weeks ago for the organs. So FDA uh, regulates human cells and tissues, and they've been very, very uh, strict in terms of saying that you know, if you uh, diagnose Zika in the past six months for both live and deceased donors of tissues and cells, that you're going to exclude these as donors. Uh, if you reside in or travel to a Zika endemic area in the past six months uh, for live donors, you, you exclude those donors. And if you've had sex with a male uh, with, with the above risk factors for live donors, you exclude them. As opposed to organs, which is a very limited resource, um, they're being uh, fairly uh, not as strict as that in terms of saying that, uh, you know, you consider the risk and benefits, but uh, if you are traveling to Zika endemic area, if the donors travel to Zika endemic area in the past 28 days and the recipient is pregnant or of childbearing age, then you can think about uh, discarding the organ. So very, very divergent views in, in both the tissue community and in the organ community. And that's because the organ community is a very scarce our resource, and um, you know, with 122,000 pe people on the waiting list, I think that uh, they're going to be really looking for cases to occur in, in immunocompromised patients before being very strict about uh, discarding these organs. But, but again, that's, that's always the fear. So to summarize, there's no evidence so far of increased incidence of severity of, of Zika virus in immunocompromised patients. Other flavored viruses with the same vector so, uh, with such as dengue and chikungunya, have overlapping symptoms except congenital effects of no in increased severity in immunocompromised patients. Other flavor virus with a different vector, West Nile virus, with more neurotropic disease in immunocompromised patients, and, and report a lot of uh, defined cases of donor-derived infections as well, I must say. CMB has interesting parallels to Zika in terms of congenital effects uh, and the impact on organ recipients and immunocompromised hosts. And Zika will result in potentially fewer tissue donations, but not organ donations as yet. And this picture is really um, a picture of a, a patient who had no risk factors for West Nile virus, but um, because of the infected organ, uh, got it infected with uh, West Nile virus, the other flavor virus, and this is immunostaining of, of that uh, image. So uh, with that, uh, thanks for your attention. Our last speaker on this panel is uh, Dr. Charles Chu, uh, who is in the in infectious diseases and on the staff at uh, a professor at UCSF, and is going to talk about one of the topics that has come up uh, frequently, and that is about diagnostics. So we are eager to hear what you have to say. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you today. Um, so I'll be talking about um, 
current diagnostics as well as emerging diagnostics for uh, diagnosis of Zika virus infection. Um, so Zika virus, as you've already heard, is a flavivirus. It's in the genus flavivirus. It's in the family flaviviridae. And um, what I show you here is a phylogenetic map of the different flaviviruses. Um, and you can see here that uh, pretty much Zika virus is shown there. It's probably most similar to yellow fever virus, but it also is, is as you can see, closely related to uh, dengue viruses, dengue viruses types 1 through 4, West Nile virus, as well as other um, uh, flaviviruses. flaviviruses. Um, it is a um, single-stranded RNA virus, so for molecular detection, you would have to do a reverse transcriptase to convert the uh, material from RNA to DNA. Uh, what you see there is actually a CDC photo uh, where you kind of see the rounded particles showing you uh, the individual uh, Zika virus virions. And um, I'll briefly go over this, but I, I think you've already heard probably several times about the clinical presentation of acute Zika infection. And it's important to note that up to 80% of these infections can be asymptomatic. And this becomes very important when you're trying to diagnose disease. Uh, when patients are symptomatic, they can present with uh, fever, headache, uh, retroorbital pain, rash, uh, conjunctivitis, myalgias, and arthralgias. Um, one important point I want to make is that these are very nonspecific symptoms, and in fact, Clinically, uh, really, Zika virus is indistinguishable from other mosquito-borne infections, including not only flaviviral infections, but other uh, vector-borne infections, such as malaria, for instance, can present with essentially an identical presentation. Um, in addition, laboratory findings are usually normal, um, although if they are abnormal, you can see leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, and some mild elevation liver transaminases, which you can also see with other flavivirus infections, such as dengue virus. And I kind of list this here, a differential diagnosis, and I really just want to use this slide to highlight that clinically it's impossible to make a specific diagnosis of Zika virus, unfortunately, because you can have a variety of bacterial, viral, and even non-infectious causes that can essentially mimic the clinical presentation of Zika virus infection. So how do we actually test for Zika virus um, in the laboratory. Well, um, we do have availability of culture. Uh, we are fortunate that the virus can actually cultures quite readily in various cell lines. Uh, unfortunately, this is not generally used clinically. It doesn't have the turnaround time uh, that, you, um, <clears throat> that you would need um, for, for clinical tests. Um, so really, the mainstay of testing is in the acute phase, uh, less than or equal to seven days after onset, is to do molecular testing, typically a Zika virus-specific RT-PCR, reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, assay. Um, interestingly enough, you can detect the virus in serum, but it, the RT-PCR assay has also been run on saliva as well as on urine. And it's actually quite interesting that the titers of the virus, the detectable titers, may be actually higher in saliva than in serum. In fact, they're actually thought to be one to two log uh, viral, the viral load is one to two log higher in saliva than it is in the blood. Um, in addition, with respect to screening of urine, it's also thought to be positive for longer periods of time in the urine. So whereas uh, direct PCR, RT-PCR from the serum, uh, it may be, there may be circulating viremia for about five to seven days. It may actually last up to two weeks uh, detectable virus in the urine. Um, the uh, CDC assay, which is at this point really the only um, available test, uh, I'll go into the next slide about commercially available tests, but the only test that has been FDA emergency use authorization or EUA approved 
um, is a test that actually does two RT-PCR reactions and actually targets two different genes in the viral genome. And it actually has to be positive for both of those PCRs for it to be called positive. Uh, if it's positive for only one of the PCRs, the reading is that it's an indeterminate uh, reading. Um, and it has a fairly good analytical sensitivity of uh, uh, 125 copies for each of the gene regions that are tested for. Um, now, in the subacute phase, um, as I mentioned before, the period of viremia is actually only up to a week. So if you have infection that's subsequent to that point for 2 to 12 weeks, uh, typically we send off an IgM or there's IgM anti-Zika ELISA, which is done by the CDC. Um, if the test is... Um, one thing to realize about the IgM test is that there is actually a 20 to 40% cross-reactivity with other flaviviruses, including dengue um, and yellow fever virus um, and West Nile virus, which also circulate at the same mosquito vector. Um, the CDC will do a confirmatory antibody assay, which is a plaque neutralization test, which is more specific, but it's important to realize that this follow-up test is not 100% specific. There still are cross-reactivity uh, that's observed with the PRNT uh, confirmatory assay. Um, I actually don't have a slide on diagnostic recommendations for testing because, as you know, this is constantly being updated on the CDC. You can check on daily basis at the CDC website. I believe that the latest recommendations are that all pregnant women who are returning, um, regardless of whether they're asymptomatic or symptomatic, are returning from endemic Zika countries in, uh, where Zika transmission are to be tested, and typically they're tested with IgM. Um, if they are symptomatic within two weeks upon return, they get also tested by an RT-PCR. Um, if you have uh, individuals who are symptomatic but who are not pregnant women, um, such as um, you know, men, for instance, that are traveling, if they're symptomatic, they can, they can get testing on a case-by-case -case basis. So the recommendation is if you're worried about Zika in someone who's not a pregnant woman, then still to do testing if they are symptomatic. Um, it's also a good idea, typically, if you're testing for Zika, because as I mentioned before, these infections are not specific, that you should also test for chingunya virus and dengue virus infection as well. Okay, I just want to spend the last, uh, actually, so these are the commercial diagnostic tests for Zika. Um, so the only one that's FDA approved is the CDC IgM ELISA. There are a large number of assays uh, by various groups like Siemens, Altona Diagnostics, and other companies that are planning on developing. Many of these are um, Zika RT-PCR. Some are multiplex assays that look for a variety of flaviviruses. Okay, so I just want to briefly spend like a minute or two just going over what's next. Um, we've, uh, in my laboratory, we have adopted an approach where we, instead of looking for just one target, we want to use metagenomic sequencing to look for, excuse me, a wide variety of, of, of targets. So we're collaborating with several groups. Uh, we're collaborating with a group in Brazil, uh, in Barbados, which is in the Caribbean, as well as in Mexico. And we're currently looking at Zika virus samples from patients with both acute suspected as well as confirmed Zika virus infection. Uh, we're employing a method called metagenomic sequencing. We're not targeting Zika, but we're looking for all flaviviral and actually all infections simultaneously. You can see here, these are 15 samples from Brazil. Uh, they're all from patients with suspected Zika infection. And you can see here that um, what you can get as a take-home message is that metagenomic sequencing appears to be comparable, if not better, than PCR, CDC-PCR testing uh, for the virus. Um, um, in addition, what we're doing is we're developing kind of point-of-care sequencing assays. So this is called a nanopore sequencer. What's nice about this is that this actually hooks up to a laptop. It's powered by the laptop, but you can actually do real-time sequencing. Um, and I just want to briefly go over um, just like a one-minute video um, where you can do real-time sequencing. So this is where we publish this data where you took 
We took two clinical samples from patients with various infections. In this case, this is a patient with known Ebola virus infection. But the idea is this is run like eight times faster. But once we start the sequencing, within two minutes, you can start to identify human reads. Uh, well, maybe two and a half minutes. Um, and then probably within three minutes, you can actually identify the presence of, say, Ebola virus. Okay? And we've actually been able to show that you can do this for chick. What's important to realize is that we're not looking specifically for Ebola. We're just looking for everything. So the, and we also have data showing that you can detect chingunya virus and actually now Zika virus. We've actually run our first Zika virus sample on the nanopore this week. Um, I just want to ask one other thing that where I think diagnostics may be moving to. One is, can we identify a host biomarker signature for Zika infection? And this is really important because you've heard about the consequences or potential consequences that have been linked to Zika, including fetal microcephaly. So one plan that we want to do is we want to see if we can find a way to monitor patients, especially pregnant women who have been infected with Zika. Can we actually identify a signature that may help uh, diagnose them or maybe prognostic? And we've been able to show this in one respect. So this is an example of where uh, we've been able to do a Lyme disease study where we can detect an inflammatory signature for Lyme disease even after a patient is better. Um, so you can see there that what you see on the top is the inflammatory profile at time zero, and then three weeks later after a patient's better had get, gotten doxycycline, and you can see they're virtually identical. And so the idea behind this is can we identify a host response signature for Lyme for Zika virus infection? We're actually doing it now for uh, acute hemorrhagic fever, so we've been able to identify a profile that may be specific for Ebola virus disease, and can we do the same for, for Zika virus and distinguish it from other flaviviral infections? So I think that um, this gene expression profiling might be an interesting way to sort of develop better diagnostics um, instead, and potentially to avoid the need for more invasive or uncertain diagnostics like uh, amniocentesis and or um, imaging. Um, and that's it. Thank you. I'd like to invite the panel members uh, to come forward so that we can now take, we have, I'd like to thank all of the panel members for saying exactly on time so that we do have uh, some time for discussion and questions. I would just, just to avoid any confusion, we should make it, make it clear that chikungunya uh, virus is an alpha virus. It is transmitted by the same vector. As, uh, as dengue and um, West uh, and um, and yellow fever uh, can be, but but it is an alpha virus. Our panelists have given us an enormous amount of wonderful material and have also raised a number of controversial areas. And do you want to start? Do you have questions? Sure. There's one question uh, from uh, the live stream. Is there a signal of incidence data for the for microcephaly according to the Peru strain? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Mark, did you want? No. You. Uh, yeah. Uh, you could turn your microphones. Uh, if you turn them on, they they turn green. If you just uh, when it's time. Okay. Thanks. Okay. We opt to defer that to an epidemiologist. Okay. <laughs> Thank you all so much for that great presentation. And I think it's a 
great example of how even in the face of a lot of questions, we've been able to develop what seem like pretty rational protocols for who to test and how to follow people. My question is, if any of you have experience or contact with people in areas where there's a much higher burden of disease, so in places like Brazil or Colombia, and what is being done there clinically for people, especially pregnant women, uh, suspected of being infected? I'm not, I'm not personally. Um, Perhaps you have some insight into that, Dr. Lester, as somebody with a great deal of um, global health experience. Um, my impression is that, that in areas of much higher disease burden, there is a great deal more struggle. Um, as has been mentioned, this is tending to be more and more of a problem in resource-limited settings. The, you know, as I described, the ultrasound follow-up and amniocentesis and counseling, these kinds of things are very resource-intensive. So I imagine that in places of less resource People are doing the best jobs that they can, um, but my impression, at least from what I can read, is that there is a lot less access to things like ultrasound follow-up and blood testing, which is clearly a big problem and an area of great need. Uh, I'd like to add on that. Yeah, just like brief, briefly add on that, um, you know, we are working with a group in Brazil, in Brazil and we're also working with a group in the Caribbean. Um, and what was, I, I was actually amazed that it's really kind of the, as Dr. Samin said, the lack of diagnostic testing that's available. Like, for instance, in Barbados, uh, they do not even have the IgM assay for Zika available. For, and these are even for pregnant patients. They only have an RT-PCR assay, which, as you know, is only effective up until a week after a patient presents. So, and this is, this is even for um, pregnant patients. So kind of the lack of diagnostic testing is really um, uh, an area of critical need. And, and, and we're not talking about emerging testing, but here we just, we're just really talking of just basic testing for Zika virus, which is not really available in the countries where there's a high incidence of these infections. So I have a question over here for Dr. Chin Hong. Uh, with regard to sperm donors, can you comment on screening in that setting? <clears throat> so um, regarding sperm donors for uh, Zika, I, I would say that it probably falls into the more conservative realm. Uh, we, you know, there was actually a discussion in the transplant community about kidney donors, which is similar in terms of that ability of the virus to persist in the urinary system for, you know, uh, a certain number of weeks post-infection. And, um, you know, I would I'd probably say, and, and since sperm donation is a little bit more um, elective, one can probably think about, you know, deferring sperm donation. Uh, you know, if somebody has been exposed, say, if you want to be more conservative in the last six months, at least one to six months post known infection before donation is probably a good idea uh, in general. I mean, I don't know if anybody else on the panel has any other comments about that. But that's a great question. I, I have uh, one, actually. Um, there have been uh, reports of difficulties accessing samples from certain countries. I'm wondering if that issue has been resolved. I, I can ask, I can answer that. So, so the um, uh, it's still a big issue, unfortunately, because every every country has 
<clears throat> its own policy with regards to uh, export and, and import of samples. Um, and um, th there have been a lot of um, issues involving getting you know, samples um, kind of accessible and made available to uh, U.S. researchers and other researchers worldwide. So this has been a big issue. Um, you know, there's been difficulty even in getting actually just cultures of Zika virus, much less access to patient samples. So, and, and I suspect that um, there's going to be a kind of a, there really needs to be a more concerted effort uh, not only to share samples, but also to share the data that's resulting from the samples, um, such as genomic and other data that's coming from it. Right, and that, that is not Zika-specific. Um, I have a question for Chris uh, while we're passing the microphone to someone else, and that is I, I was very pleased to see the activities that are going on in California, uh, really mapping the location and the infection rates in, in, in the mosquitoes. But how, um, what about other states? Are most other states um, having programs that are of a similar comprehensive nature? Certainly other state health departments are thinking a lot about this. The, the number of vector control agencies and their level of organization varies a lot by state. So most states, I would say, don't even come close to California's mm -hmm. level of organization, as well as the level of funding we have for these agencies. Uh, part of that's driven by numbers of people, of mm -hmm. course. So places like Florida and New Jersey also have pretty good mosquito control. Parts of Texas, which is good in the case of Zika, the area around Houston has good mosquito control. But Louisiana? Louisiana has pretty organized mm -hmm. mosquito control, so it's, it's very variable. It's a patchwork of mostly local agencies, and um, it, they try to coordinate as best they can. CDC is really the central mm -hmm. coordinating group, and the group in Fort Collins that handles mm -hmm. vector-borne diseases is a major part of that. Thank you. Yeah, I just I had a question about the uh, overall clinical management of the infant, and I think you did a great job of outlining what you do here. and your algorithms, but I, one of the questions that I think we're going to have as this unfolds, whether our, this turns out to uh, settle down and become uh, hypoendemic or it disappears altogether, is this whole cohort of children we have to remember is like the rubella cohort. And we, again, as you alluded to, uh, um, I think we don't really know how asymptomatic these young infants who aren't microcephalic are going to be. And so any plans to follow the children that you see over the longer haul and what you might recommend doing uh, in, uh, uh, in examining them and following their neurodevelopment? Uh, I think that's a great question. Is this on? Okay. Um, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, all the focus has been on the, the, uh, the findings that are evident at birth, but this is probably going to be a huge spectrum um, of uh, infants that are affected and a lot of it probably won't come to light unless we develop longer-term uh, follow-up protocols for these kids. So I think the community is just getting organized around that now, but there's definitely a need, a need to do that. From a prenatal perspective, um, we are intending to try and track women who are tested and potentially exposed as much as possible so that we may be able to give the, our pediatrics colleagues a, a heads up about a child who may be totally healthy and normal at birth but have manifestations down the line. So that's certainly part of our approach here and I imagine is a part of the approach um, across the United States at big centers. 
Okay, my question is, um, during the Ebola epidemic, we found out most of the countries that were affected in sub-Saharan Africa didn't have the capacity to actually detect um, or test for, these, um, for the condition. And looking at what's going on now, it seems um, most of the efforts are um, in the Americas right now. Are there efforts right now to more or less, in a proactive manner, build capacity to test for the Zika virus just in case you have this spread to the continent of Africa or some other areas like that? Are there efforts right now, you know, thinking ahead to preempt this spread in that area and detect it early? Just to mention the specific case of Africa, Zika virus is transmitted in sub-Saharan Africa, and um, we think that's where it came from. That's where it was discovered. There was no evidence in the Americas before. Certainly capacity there is a big issue for many pathogens, so... That's one reason Zika hadn't received much much attention until recent years was that it was a mild febrile illness. There's many causes of that in the tropics, including sub-Saharan Africa. So I think as the evidence emerges on these other more serious health consequences, that would deserve a second look, perhaps. It would seem that if there are good diagnostic tests, that it will be possible to that, that everyone potentially can benefit from those. So uh, just as for Dr. Feeney, I, thinking about rubella in 1964 and the kind of the real lingering sort of mildest form, if you will, was sensory, neur- uh, was sensory neural hearing deficits. You think as you now have universal screening with, uh, for audiology and audio and evoked potentials, um, you could put together, you, you, it would seem to me that you could do a, a case control study pretty easily and work backwards from children who present with, with uh, hearing deficits or identified with hearing deficits and try and get back and look at their mother's serology. And I'm volunteering you for that one. <laughs> um, I, I mean, definitely, uh, if there is a, a widespread, uh, trans, a large number of cases here, that's something that we absolutely should do. I think the potential exists and that there might be that or other subtle effects. Um, but... I, I, I can't speak to an effort to, to do that right now. Okay, I think we have... Did, you have a question? I asked this earlier and there was no... Wait, wait for the microphone. They'll bring... It's on its way. I'll ask it again. Um, the prospects of using new genetic technology like gene drive to just kill every Egyptian mosquito on the planet. <laughs> I... I think that's really, it sounds appealing on the surface. We have CRISPR, we can edit genes now. So the challenge with genetic strategies in general have always been the fitness advantages that you need to really drive them into the population. So I think it's worth consideration. There's certainly a lot of issues with genetically modified organisms of any kind, and uh, those will need to be discussed. But I think it should be part of the conversation, whether it will work at a large scale is uncertain. I'd like to thank all our panelists, and we will move on to the last panel. Thank you very much. Thanks. Our last panel will be about the policy implications. Uh, Our moderator will be Claire Brindis. Claire is the Professor of Pediatrics and Health Policy in the Department of Pediatrics. OB, got a call? Okay, sorry. Jaime Sebulveda will be standing in for Claire to moderate, and Claire will be the first speaker. Uh, Claire, uh, Dr. Brindis, in addition to 
uh, being an expert on many topics, is the uh, director of the Institute for the Philip H. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies. Thank you. I want to thank uh, Jaime Sepulveda and his wonderful team for having brought us together for this really important symposium and also the strengths of the transdisciplinary nature of what we're speaking about. Um, I thought, given the time of the afternoon, that I would be a little bit more, um, shall we say, uh, challenging to think about the sil any silver lining in the crisis that we have right now. And clearly, just within a very short period of time, having been in the field of reproductive health rights and justice, I have been really impressed by how much the uh, environment and the ecology has changed around this discourse regarding who is saying what about um, women's need to delay having a first a child, the issues of the WHO and CDC guidelines. But of course, really impressive to me is that the Pope is considering, even informally, talking about how under these circumstances we need to think about the access to reproductive uh, contraceptive services. And the president of the Congo in the 1960s, when nuns were given contraceptives as a means to prevent being pregnant from, as a result of being raped uh, in the war. Clearly, we have many, many messages around what is the expectation, and both WHO, the CDC, on a daily basis, now we're inundated with information about the reproductive life cycle, the importance of counseling women to delay having a child, the importance of having access to a reproductive life plan, to think about the importance preconceptually during the pregnancy and postnatally as being really important points in which providers really need to be involved as well as the guidelines around protection, whether it's wearing long sleeves or having uh, FDA-approved uh, 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 insect repellents or ensuring that windows and doors have screens or having air conditioning. And what I feel is really important in today's conversation is to talk about the disconnect between the guidelines that are being proposed and the many countries and the many populations who are very much at high risk for the kinds of threats that, that uh, this virus has in their lives. In fact, the Zika virus exposes the tragic failures of reproductive rights, health policies in Latin America and in many other countries in the world. And if you think about the disconnect, we need to think about the level of education in so many of these communities, particularly um, with an exposure to Latin America where there are many young people who are of reproductive age who have never been exposed to sex education or comprehensive sex education who start their sexual lives fairly early with many older partners who feel very un um, un uh, unempowered to be able to negotiate condom use or even a birth control method within their uh, partnership. There's also the issue of supplies. And uh, for example, in El Salvador, a number of government agencies, when they distribute condoms, sometimes only give 30 condoms at a time. So the supply chain, in terms of reproductive access to contraceptives, is also very, very challenged. 
And while abortion is illegal in many of these countries, millions of women every year have abortions. And many of them turn, particularly in rural uh, areas and for very low-income communities, to very um, dangerous abortions. And uh, in fact, the fourth um, cause of death, maternal death, in some of these countries pertains to abortion. So we need to recognize that these are very challenging times because the women and men living with these vulnerabilities are very much facing multiple concurrent risks, whether it's having to do with gender rights, whether it has to do with reproductive access, the cultural barriers to the use of birth control, poor access to information, as well as the fact that in the housing and local environments, there are many, many uh, risks, particularly breeding grounds for the mosquitoes that we've been talking about. So then, what are the possibilities? What are the options? Where should we be heading if we're going to operationalize the guidelines that have been proposed? And here I want to make a point about the fact that we in reproductive health have been guided by many ethical standards of practice. And I won't read this list that um, have been, has been in the field and Bob uh, Hatcher has uh, developed over 40 years. But the point I want to make here is that we need to look at reproductive services as a human right and a human benefit to not only women, but to men as well as their families. And that each person has a right to contraceptive services, to confidential care, and to a variety of options, including contraception, abortion, as well as sterilization. And that they have a right to receive these services with dignity. What are those options then, using these standards and these uh, principles that I've just laid out for you? Clearly, we need to think about the dyad, and we need to think about it's not just the responsibility of the woman to delay having this next child or her first child, but what are the ways that we're going to engage men in a very strategic manner so that they are part of the conversations about childbearing within the life course? And to be thinking about this along the continuum of preconceptual as well as during the pregnancy and postpartum as well as interconceptual times. We need to think about capacity building, and that is every single person who's now touching the lives of these men and women need to have the capacity to start being able to screen for these kinds of topics. And I can tell you that reproductive health often feels very controversial. Many people feel at dis-ease around bringing up these taboo topics. So we need to be committed to being sure that we're going to have enough capacity in those individuals who are going to be doing this kind of screening that goes above and beyond their usual jobs. And this isn't just providers, but it's also the front line uh, director, for example, a community health worker, or a promotora, or individuals who are working in a variety of settings. Third, we need to think about full integration of the reproductive health messaging and policies and services as part of the overall comprehensive health services that women and men 
ought to be receiving, should be receiving, and hopefully will be receiving. And that there should be many vari various ways of receiving these reproductive health services, particularly in the most rural, isolated communities. And now with data that points out to the safety of over-the-counter use for um, birth control pills, uh, by the way, California, starting next month, will have the ability to have women receive contraceptive pills through pharmacies, mobile vans, and other means for distribution of pills, patches, condoms, but also to be thinking about how do we bring pregnancy options counseling, including the use of Plan B or emergency contraception or RU486 available at women's fingertips. We need to be thinking about the role of social media and communication and being able to engage communities in hearing about the importance of these messages. And then we need to be thinking about public and private partnerships between governments and non-governmental organizations that have long carried the advocacy for these kinds of services, even in the most isolated communities. And finally, not finally, but perhaps most important, we need to be thinking about economic development and sta stable and safe communities, because that is really at the crux of being able to give women and men the rights and responsibilities to think about when and how many children they will have in their lives. To end, I have been really struck by um, this quote, the silver lining. Zika offers, and I need my glasses. programs to prevent discrimination and exclusion of people living with disabilities. If government does not take this opportunity, the Zika virus will not only be a public health issue, but will also exacerbate existing gender inequalities and social injustice. Thank you very much. Policy uh, is important not just at the level of government, but also at the level of medical institutions that provide clinical care. And to discuss that topic, we have Dr. Adrian Green to come up. Uh, Dr. Green is clinical professor of medicine, chief medical officer for UCSF Medical Center, and vice president for patient safety and accreditation for UCSF Health. She also led uh, UCSF's response to the Ebola crisis, including the preparation of UCSF Health for uh, possible cases. So with that, Dr. Green. Well, thank you for inviting me to participate today. As I've been reflecting on the day, I first realized what an incredible privilege it is to be a part of this community after listening, as particularly to the last couple of, of sessions, we have a wealth of knowledge and a wealth that we can contribute. But what I also realized is that I was invited here not because I hold any specific information with respect to the Zika virus, but because I'm an expert in our health system. 
And my role and the role of the other health system leaders is really to be uh, experts in our health system so that whether we are responding to something emerging like Zika or Ebola or an earthquake, we have a very well-coordinated response that assures the safety of our patients, the exceptional care that our patients uh, deserve and are used to, and that we are able to keep our communities safe. And because you've already heard about what we're doing in our obstetrics clinic and how the blood banks are prepared and what we're doing from a lab testing perspective, I thought that the perspective that I could add would be just to talk very briefly about how we organize ourselves within the health system in response to a situation like this. So when we hear about uh, something that is urgent or emergent, the sort of response infrastructure that we use is something called the Hospital Incident Command System, or the HICS infrastructure. And that is a system by which there's an incident commander who's su supported by um, a group of section chiefs who are operational and clinical leaders across the health system who, can, um, who represent big areas, clinical areas, uh, facilities, the operational areas, finance, HR, and we bring all of those people together, uh, typically you know, somewhere between 30 and 50 people either in a room or on the phone. We get a briefing from the content experts, typically the clinical experts in whatever the uh, arena is that's um, uh, the crux of the issue, and we begin to problem solve. So, and we ask ourselves sort of what systems we have in place already or what systems we need to put into place in order to uh, create a safe response for our patients and our community. And the advantage of having all of the appropriate leaders at the table is that we are assured that whatever we need, we'll have the resources to respond appropriately. And I think one of the best examples I can think of for that was sort of early in our Ebola preparation when we were pretty daunted by the idea of having to implement standardized screening or travel screening and symptom screening across our entire organization, sort of every portal of entry from every clinic, every lab, someone coming in for a lab test or a radiology study, the emergency department, a direct admission to the hospital. And it was pretty perplexing how we were going to do this in a standardized way. But we had a lot of great people at the table, including some of our IT folks. And they said, you know, I think we can build a tool in our EPIC health record to help the registration folks. And it will also, if we do this right, create an alert system. And because we had those folks at the table and we had other people at the table who were able to say, you know what, that's a great idea. Here are some resources to be able to go and do that because this is really important. We were actually able to not only develop that system but implement it and have a very nice sort of training and education program so that we were able to sort of deploy it in a, in a very organized manner. I think that's sort of the beauty of having everyone around the table with this kind of an infrastructure. The other thing that I think is very important from a health system perspective is that we have a very nice relationship with our local San Francisco Department of Public Health, and that assures that as we're working on things like our response to, to Zika, we're working in a way that's coordinated with the Department of Public Health, sort of at the San Francisco level, the state level, and, and at the level of the CDC. So we're doing what's right for our community. And then the last thing that I wanted to briefly mention is the other big area that uh, we are responsible for from the health system perspective is communication. Communication both with our community, be it our hospital staff, faculty, students, residents, or uh, our patients. 
And this is something that, as everyone in this room knows, we are challenged by. We work very, very hard to sort of balance uh, appropriate communication in a very broad manner uh, with sort of just enough information uh, for a large population uh, and making sure that everyone in our community knows um, what they need to know about a particular event, um, but not sort of overburdening people with excess communication and then balancing that with very targeted communication in the areas where people need to know the most, either about a new system or about uh, a process in, in itself. And then we also have a great support structure within the health system for communicating with our patients. And we try uh, with this as well to sort of titrate the communication uh, depending on the circumstance. And we have, um, you know, done communications with respect to big events by, you know, paper letters and snail mail. Uh, we can use my chart to disseminate uh, uh, big um, uh, communications. We create informational websites. And when we need to, we'll create advice lines so people can call in directly to to a particular clinic and get advice. But that I think communication is always a challenge and we certainly welcome people's input on how to, how to improve our systems with respect to communication. So I didn't want to take up too much time, but I hope that what I've been able to sort of impress upon folks is we've got a, a great group of both operational and clinical leaders. We're able to come to, together very quickly when needed and uh, develop systems to respond to whatever kind of situation comes up in a way that assures our, our patients are safe and our community is safe as well. Uh, next we have uh, Dr. Barbara Koenig, who is uh, going to speak with us about uh, the ethical issues involved in management of uh, Zika. Uh, Dr. Koenig is a uh, professor of bioethics and medical anthropology at the Institute for Health and Aging here at UCSF. Do you need a separate? Um... Yeah, no, I just, I don't have slides, but I am going to need oh, to you, have you a place. Space. Okay. Yeah, if I can just make a little space, thanks. Thanks. Good afternoon. And I, I don't have slides. I just want to start by thanking uh, Dr. Sepulveda for the invitation. I've really learned a lot today. And as some number of other people have said, they're very, I'm very proud to be part uh, of this community. Um, I'm supposed to be talking about the ethics of emerging uh, infectious disease that, that unfolds globally, which is a challenging topic. I, I will have to say I'm not an expert, but um, I was told, well, no one is really an expert in that. But I do have two prior experiences that are perhaps relevant. Um, the first is that I did have the experience of being based here in San Francisco during the early 80s and was able to watch the HIV epidemic unfold, which was a, an experience that has shaped the rest of my career. Um, and then also later, I served um, on the ethics committee that was advising the director of the CDC. Um, and that was a, another very important experience to think about the issue of the relationship between public health ethics and clinical care. But also at that point, um, there was actually, CDC actually has an operation control uh, center for response to these kinds of emerging infections, and they actually had an ethics desk. Now, I'm not sure if they still did, but the idea was that, um, that there was this, this opportunity to think of the ethics issues and the downstream ethics issues that could hopefully be addressed 
in the context of doing, uh, of thinking about how to respond to, to these kinds of public health crises. So as I was preparing for this talk, I started thinking about, well, what would the ethics officer of the day be worrying about now, and how can we hopefully prevent some uh, serious downstream consequences? So there are three domains that I want to talk about where ethics issues, I think, are paramount. The first is the ethics um, of, global, of lo global and local public health practice itself. The second is research ethics in the face of an emerging epidemic. Now, those two things, the sort of the context of public health, the context of research, also there's a fluid boundary between the two, and sometimes it gets a little mixed up and can get us uh, confused. And it's important to have that in mind. Um, and then third, I want to talk about some broader social concerns. Um, will we respond appropriately to this emerging uh, Zika epidemic, and will we respond fairly? And those, that's, I think, very, very important. All of this unfolds in a, in a context of scientific uncertainty uh, that we've heard described in great detail today, uncertainty that's being alleviated over time with the kinds of elegant studies described here today. But nonetheless, at particular points in times, you, you do need to act based on uncertain information. Um, so let me turn to my first of the three topics, the ethics of epidem epidemic control, and in some cases, uh, individual treatment and where those uh, come together. So this is really the ethics of public health practice, and I'm going to build on what uh, Claire Brindis talked about. It's really, in this case, how to be respectful of individual rights, and especially in this case, gender issue and women's rights, and how to keep account of some of the north-south differences. I kept thinking about, as you read the list of recommendations and requirements, well, don't travel there. Well, I kept thinking, well, some people already are there, and they, it's not an issue for them of simply not traveling there. Um, so the questions that we might want to ask in terms of a global epidemic of are the benefits and risks shared? Uh, for example, recommendations regarding travel and other restri restrictions, recording, uh, reporting recommendations, um, or even things like avoiding exposure to mosquitoes. Those are very challenging kinds of, uh, of recommendations, and are people actually able to do them? Um, most importantly, though, really is this issue of the recommendation to avoid pregnancy. Now, um, I am an anthropologist, so I have a, perhaps a different perspective. Telling someone to avoid pregnancy is a deeply contextual issue, and whether you have the possibility or even, the, or even whether that's even, whether the, the fact that it's something that can be controlled is within your ken is not uh, the case around the globe. And I think... So these recommendations seem a little bold-faced to me, as though they're going to be very hard to move forward. Um, birth control may not be readily available, affordable, or culturally acceptable. We've heard that discussed. Access to contraception is a challenge. It may be dangerous to the health of a woman to act to even insist on contraception. Um, so making these recommendations as public health interventions demands follow-up um, and it really demands that we make the use of contraceptives safe and probably provide them in some cases, which was already mentioned, um, and hope and perhaps even it will involve the change in certain religious um, proclamations, which is perhaps a, a possibility. Um, so how should this birth control um, problem be addressed? Where, where's the research for this? Um, so it's a, I think it's a, we're going to need as much good, high-quality social research in responding to the epidemic as the kind of biological research that we've heard already described today. 
For those already pregnant, uh, the travel restrictions in any trimester, um, as we've mentioned, can be daunting. Um, But again, what about those who are already in the area? So CDC has recommended both serological as well as amniotic fluid testing, followed by serial ultrasound. But since there's no treatment for the Zika virus and for for microcephaly in the fetus, and presumably it's irreversible, what counseling and advice should be given to the pregnant women who test positive? Um, And what about services for those without any kind of access, especially to um, abortion services? All of this epidemic will be unfolding in the context of global abortion politics. Um, And as we've heard, access to abortion services is problematic even in in many areas of the United States. This is not just a global issue. Will the issue of third trimester termination be raised? And is that going to be, uh, will that be, uh, I was speaking at lunch with one of my colleagues from OBGYN who was raising that question. Um, That will be very, very controversial and may have some backlash Uh, especially in the United States. There's also the need to protect the confidentiality of those who make decisions to terminate pregnancy. Um, Women may be at risk or vulnerable, and of course there's the need for assistance with raising a child with disability. I want to also think about the issue of how the way we respond to this epidemic may also play out in terms of thinking about the creation of stigma and also the issue of disability rights. if we're too negative about thinking about these, especially the children with, with, with microcephaly, we may have the, uh, the unintended consequence of further stigmatizing the Im- impact on children and adults with various forms of microcephaly. Um, so it's an important reminder, I think, to, for all of us that the, the meaning of disability is always culturally specific. There may be alternative views of suffering in other parts of the world that make this less of a, that, that, that will mean the outcome of a child with microcephaly may be quite different, and I think we need to be open to some of those differences. Um, and then I keep thinking about this in, about, around a north-south kind of axis. Um, will those dwelling in endemic areas be seen as stigmatized or simply as sources of infection as we try and engage in epidemic control? So... So the second area that I want to talk about is public health research ethics. And in my, during my experience on working with the CDC, um, I saw often um, that we were letting our research ethics practices that are based on a particular environment in the West get in the way of our response to the epidemic. Um, thank you for showing me the, the minute, how many minutes I have left. Um, so. So I, I think that's something that we also have to keep, keep in mind. Um, how can we use existing public health resources? For example, if we have uh, data banks filled with genomic data that might help us sort out issues of host response, but we have really cumbersome informed consent procedures that don't allow us to use that data in the context of an epidemic, that's quite problematic. I'm working a lot on newborn screening these days, so it found, I started wondering, well, could we use some of those blood spots to get a sense of, of the extent of some of the uh, of exposure to certain viruses? And possibly we could, but we might have regulations that get in the way, and how do we have a deliberative process to move beyond that? There also will be the problems of the handling of these biological materials that are vitally important for the research and how to share information across borders. Those are ethical problems that have already been raised. 
Um, and then finally, on the research ethic front, front, should pregnant women be included in vaccine in, in vaccine research or other forms of research, assuming that we get to the point of having a new vaccine? At the moment, uh, using pregnant women in research is extremely uh, limited. It requires a lot of attention, and I think it's going to, if we're going to actually uh, affect that, we're going to have to have some modifications in those practices as well. Okay, so finally, the overarching social issues, I think, that we need to, to think about. Uh, one a questioner in the audience has already raised the question twice of the issue of CRISPR-Cas9 technologies and the possibility of gene drives. I think these ep epidemics of arthropod-borne illness are going to really push this idea. There's already um, a, a proposal that's, about, that, that's based on a dengue control uh, in Brazil that's being, uh, that's being used in uh, a sort of bio, uh, genetic controlled uh, experiment that's about to be mounted. These are going to be very, very complicated. And again, who will bear the benefits and the risks? Um, so the main point, I think, is achieving justice in approaches to this epidemic. Um, will the responses to the epidemic of Zika, as well as other similar maladies, be based on concern for global health, or will they become based, or will they be overtaken by political considerations? We, you know, for example, the impact on tourism, um, uh, the issue of the, um, uh, the the Olympics in that's upcoming in Brazil. Sorry, I lost my place. Um, loss of revenue from tourism. Uh, how do we get cooperation on epidemic control in the context where s certain countries may want to keep information uh, from coming to light? So there's a, there are fundamental justice questions. What priorities should be given to the development of a drug or a vaccine, given other major viral diseases that also are without vaccines? So we're going to have to answer all of those questions. None of these questions are new, with the possible exception of some of these gene drive questions, but we definitely have to, con to keep working on them. So um, many questions remain unanswered. What is the role of, for the public or publics globally? What forms of community engagement should, be we, consi should we be considering? Um, and at this particular moment, I think that's very important. We may need to think about how to get the views of the, the individuals who will be affected. Um, the balancing of caution and a need for action is important. Um, what if, I found myself thinking, one of the things you do if you work in ethics is to think about what if. Well, what if um, it turns out that the virus in and of itself is not sufficient to cause some of these bad outcomes? What if there are other, um, what if there are other co more complex environmental exposures that are involved? How do we keep things open so that we can look at those things? And finally, um, in an inter interconnected world, and I ask you to recall those slide of the airplane flights demonstrating how quickly we can get anywhere in the globe, uh, can we use the epidemic for another silver, uh, can, could the epidemic have another silver lining, as Claire said, that perhaps Zika can show us that health is indeed a shared social good and not simply an individual good, and that if we're going to have, um, if we're going to benefit from that, we all need to work together. So thanks very much. So as a public institution, UCSF takes great pride in putting ethics before money. And uh, to prove that, we now have uh, Steph Bertozzi, Dean of the School of Public Health, to talk about the economics of the Zika virus. 
Nothing. Nothing. Call up and no response. <laughs> Crickets out there. Well, it's, it is late. Oops. Great. Thanks very much, Colin. Um, I noticed that your Zika virus is Stanford red. Um, <laughs> I found a different one, but then I thought to myself, maybe it's better if it's red. Um, <laughs> the, um, Jaime asked me to talk about the economics of Zika, which seems a little bit early because there is not a whole lot of work that's been done on it. Um, but there is this study that he actually pointed me to, which the World Bank put out um, last month in February, which suggests that just within this year there could be very large effects of the epidemic on macroeconomic issues within the region. And their estimate, which is probably reasonably finger in the, in the air, um, is about $3.5 billion. And you can see that... Uh, there are many ways, I mean, one obvious one is what has already been mentioned more than once, and that's issues of decline in tourism, what will happen with the Olympics, et cetera. Uh, I think a much more interesting longer-term issue has been alluded to by the previous discussions on what happens with the reduction in childbearing and what are the implications of that. And as you might imagine, they could cut in both directions, um, depending on where and when and how. So I think that's an interesting question about which there aren't any real answers. This is just a quick snapshot of what the bank estimated where the biggest effects would be, and those are the top five countries there, and where the most important effects per capita would be, and that's really in the Caribbean. In fact, there are another five countries, small islands in the Caribbean, where they expect more than 1% effect of, uh, of Zika just in 2016 on GDP. So um, I wanted to spend most of the little time I have actually thinking about what might we be concerned about in thinking about how to respond to the epidemic. And uh, so the answer is mostly that there's a whole lot we don't know, which means that if you were to try to do cost-effectiveness calculations, you could come up with pretty much any answer you want, depending on what uh, numbers you want to choose for parameters. But just to go over a couple of the important ones, uh, we've already heard today, and unfortunately I missed the morning part, but obviously lots of uncertainty about the incidence of adverse outcomes. Why is it that it looks like in Polynesia the incidence of microcephaly is different than it is in Brazil, and what is it going to look like in Mexico, and how does that compare? Lots of unknowns. Similarly with Guillain-Barre, although from what we just heard, it sounds like that may be more constant across geographies. Um, the potential for multifactorial causes of both, or in particular, um, given what we've just heard in microcephaly, um, if it's possible that there are significant cofactors, for example, prior dengue infection or, as one of my colleagues suggested, the use of um, neurotoxic um, insecticides uh, on the probability that a, a particular person infected with, with um, Zika will, a pregnant woman infected with Zika will develop uh, microcephaly or other serious um, congenital problems. Um, and also, as we've just seen, and I now know more than I did, uh, the issue of window of vulnerability in pregnancy, which actually complicates things significantly given what we've just seen with this very broad window of vulnerability in pregnancy, suggesting that we're not talking about, as some people had suggested um, earlier, some, um, a problem that was really a three, the first three months of pregnancy problem, and that after that, women were likely to be relatively spared. Um, also been raised the issue of duration of sexual transmission risk, 
and the durability of immunity. I mean, I, it may stand to reason that given other flaviviruses have lifelong immunity, this one probably does too, but I understand that that was not discussed this morning, or at least not definitively answered this morning, although I would imagine that the work that Astu Pasteur is doing in Polynesia would at least give us some um, insight into that, and similarly with earlier African infections. And also, we've just heard about issues with respect to diagnostic testing. And I mentioned diagnostic testing in a different way, which I haven't heard since I, I came just afternoon, and that is use of serologic testing for women who want to become pregnant to see whether they've been previously exposed or not, and can therefore be relatively confident that Zika will not be an issue for them. So this issue of sensitivity and specificity and obviously cost uh, of uh, serologic testing uh, that a woman can use for making reproductive decisions. So I thought I'd first mention an obvious one, which is vaccine development. Now, if we were sort of tabla rasa here, we might say to ourselves, is it worth developing a vaccine? I think that's already been answered. Um, people are developing a vaccine. But what might we consider in thinking about both development and implementation of a vaccine? So since I don't have any real data, I just colored with my <laughs> pencils. <laughs> That's the great advantage. Economists can do that. <laughs> Jealous, aren't you? <laughs> um, so this is a graph of the horizontal axis is what uh, drug companies like to think of as the probability of technical and regulatory success. So if you invest in the development of a product, what's the likelihood that you're actually going to get it over the line and get a, have a product that is um, approved by the FDA? And the vertical axis is if you got the thing, how cost-effective would it be? And so um, here are three different potential Zika viruses, three different potential um, probability that they will actually be successful, and the ball size has to do with what is the burden of disease that they would address. And one important thing here is that uh, sometimes you can actually choose what cost effectiveness you want because it really depends on what population it's implemented in. So if you were in a setting with a very high incidence of Zika virus in pregnancy and a very low prevalence of prior immunity um, prior to pregnancy, then the use of the vaccine would be very cost-beneficial, and, and the, it would be very high on the cost-effectiveness axis, but potentially not address a very large burden of disease because you're only using it in those places where that's the case. If, in fact, you were going to vaccinate huge swaths of the population in places where the, vaccine has, where the virus has not yet arrived in any significant, to any significant degree to prevent the possibility of an epidemic in that population, then you might prevent a much greater burden of disease but at much less cost-effectiveness because you'd be vaccinating many people who would never be exposed. And um, this is captured, you can read the, the quote yourself, in something Tony Fauci published last month, um, which suggests that it won't be easy to know how to use this, this vaccine if we have one. So then coming back, Next strategy, of course, is vector control, and you've seen several slides on that, whether it's long sleeves or anything else. Uh, the good thing is that it addresses three diseases, and um, if, in fact, there's any relationship between dengue and, and Zika, that might be good even for Zika, the fact that it addresses um, the other diseases. Um, and the other good thing about it is the vector control was a pretty good thing to do anyway because of the other diseases. It's now even more cost-effective if it addresses three diseases. But... That last bullet, in absence of a vaccine, or if, we don't, if we're not going to have one soon, will be all kinds of issues about what it does 
to when people become infected. And so if there's a high attack rate in communities and children are likely to become infected with Zika and it's a relatively mild infection and that protects them for life or at least through their childbearing years if they're women, then the fact that we delay or reduce that attack rate or delay infection and make it more likely that people get infected when they're adults, then that may in fact be a problem in a steady state. And some of us are old enough to remember when you used to send your kids over to the house of uh, the other kid with chickenpox so that they could get infected um, because what you didn't want was for them to get through childhood without getting chickenpox and then get pneumonia as an adult because childhood chickenpox is unpleasant but not especially life-threatening, but adult chickenpox is really pretty unpleasant. Um, so similar things may, in fact, um, start to be relevant here, especially in terms of thinking about cost-effectiveness of prevention programs. And then we've just heard from, from um, Claire and, and Barbara about secondary prevention, about the use of family planning. And what I was sitting there, I was thinking that an additional form of secondary prevention that I don't know if it was mentioned this morning, but we certainly talk about it a lot with... Um, new strategies for HIV prevention and for other um, epidemic conditions, and that is the administration of passive immunity um, with monoclonal antibodies. And this would be an example where it might be especially relevant because you wouldn't be talking necessarily about lifelong passive immunity, but just passive immunity um, prior to and during pregnancy. So another thing to consider, which uh, with the rapidly falling costs of uh, manufacture of monoclonals may actually not be ridiculous. Um, but I mention here two options. One is the family planning option that has already been mentioned, and the other is the possibility that we would, as a public health strategy, uh, especially in places where there has been significant infection already, um, do uh, screening of women who want to become pregnant so that they can see whether they've been previously exposed or not and can feel more confident that they would have a safe pregnancy. So another made-up slide, of course. Um, this is just thinking about the two axes are, the vertical axis is the incidence among pregnant women, among seronegative pregnant women, and or previously uninfected, and the horizontal one is among seropositive women. Uh, I'm sorry, is the proportion of women who are seropositive prior to pregnancy, and it's obviously much more cost-effective to do family planning in the upper left-hand corner. And to finish, just thinking about what, it, what happens when you add screening to that. Well, the most cost-effective population in which you would want to do screening is the population is a population in which it is most uncertain whether the woman is already um, uh, already has prior immunity. If nobody has been previously exposed and there's high incidence, then obviously that's uh, it does, screening doesn't do much good because you're going to you would have almost the same effect if you just assumed everyone was not previously infected. While on the contrary, if almost everyone is previously infected and there's very high attack rates, like has been the case in Latin America with Hep A, for example then doing a serologic testing is not very useful either because you can assume that women of, 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 of reproductive age are already infected. So it changes what population you want to focus on and, and what countries at what stage of the epidemic you'd think about using what strategies. So I think I'm out of time, given what Matthew's telling me, and I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, next we'll have... a. a James Watt from the California Department of Public Health to come up and uh, share with us the uh, California plans. Great, thank you very much. Um, well, I guess one of the pitfalls of being the last speaker of the day is that pretty much everything I was planning to say has already been said. 
Um, so that I hope, I hope that what I have to say will be somewhat synthetic. Um, I do want to um, acknowledge at the beginning that I'm going to be focusing on a risk assessment for folks here in California, and, which is similar to some perspectives from the CDC about um, the risk assessment in the continental United States. But I do want to acknowledge that the situation in many other parts of the world is very different, in, including parts of our country like Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, where there is already widespread transmission of Zika virus and very significant um, issues that have already been uh, talked about. But let me turn to California because that's really the mandate of the California Department of Public Health. Um, and in thinking about the, the risk of Zika virus infection here in California, um, I mentally construct a table. I'm an epidemiologist, so I think in terms of two-by-two two tables. And we can think of two different primary modes of transmission that we know of, mosquito-borne transmission and sexual transmission. And then we can think of two different risk or exposure categories, um, travel-associated exposure and local exposure. And you get four different cells. And I'm going to touch on each of those cells um, briefly. So first, there's the um, risk associated with of exposure to Zika virus through mosquito-borne transmission in a travel setting. And this is really the primary mode of transmission that we have seen so far for California residents. Um, as we've heard, there's a tremendous amount of travel between California to areas, particularly in the Americas, where Zika virus is being widely transmitted. Um, so far in uh, 2016, we have had specimens from about 700 people submitted through our laboratory for testing in the public health laboratory network. Of those, we have results back on about 100, and we've had, uh, since the beginning of the year, 11 people test positive in California. All of those folks have previously traveled during their um, incubation period to a country where Zika is being widely transmitted. So that's really the, the primary risk that we are, are seeing at this point. Um, one thing that I think is going to be very important for understanding this uh, risk, this particular risk category, is what's happening in Mexico, because the amount of travel, particularly across the U.S., the California-Mexico border is very, very large. At present, the Mexican Ministry of Health is reporting the most uh, local transmission of Zika virus in two southern states of Chiapas and Oaxaca. Um, there have only been a handful of, of uh, locally transmitted cases reported from other states, none along the California-Mexico or the Arizona-Mexico border. Um, but I think that if Zika virus begins to move into the border region in Mexico, that could very much increase the um, risk of local uh, or of travel-associated transmission here in California. We certainly know that the um, vector mosquitoes exist along the, um, in the border communities in Mexico, and there has been um, already local transmission of dengue in those communities. Um, next, let's talk about uh, travel-related sexual transmission, and by that I mean first-generation transmission from a returning traveler to a sexual partner uh, here in California. Um, in late February, CDC reported on six cases of travel-associated transmission documented here in the United States. None have been recognized yet in California, but I think it's only a matter of time until we see that. All six of those cases that CDC documented, as we've heard, were from men to women, and in all cases, the men had um, symptoms um, on or around the time of um, uh, sexual intercourse. Um, at this point, I think the, the magnitude of that risk um, is difficult to estimate because, as we've heard, there's just a lot we don't know about sexual transmission, including 
uh, the duration of um, uh, viral shedding, the um, efficiency of sexual transmission, um, and the, whether or not men who are asymptomatic um, are able to transmit virus sexually. With respect to um, local transmission of Zika virus, this has not been documented in California um, or in the continental United States via um, mosquito-borne transmission. But we know that Aedes mosquitoes are widespread across much of the United States, including in California. These mosquitoes are not native to California, but um, have been introduced and are now present in 12 counties um, in California and have, as we heard, have been persistent for a number of years and are unlikely to be eradicated, at least with the current technologies that we're using. We've also heard that there have been um, localized outbreaks of other 80s borne viruses, dengue and chikungunya, in the continental United States, um, in Florida and in Texas. And so the likelihood of having a local um, Zika virus transmission in the United States is, is possible. We certainly have vector, we certainly have um, viremic persons returning um, who could initiate a transmission cycle. But I think that the risk of sustained or widespread transmission is very, very unlikely because of the environmental conditions in this country um, that limit the interaction between people and mosquitoes, um, the reproductive rate or the reproductive number of um, Zika and other Aedes-borne viruses is, appears to be less than one, and so these clusters that we've seen so far with dengue and chikungunya have been limited in time and space. And finally, let me just touch on the risk of what I, what's in that fourth box that goes under the heading of local sexual transmission, and by that I mean sustained transmission in a sexual network beyond that first-generation transmission. This has not been documented anywhere, to my knowledge, um, and so this remains in the realm of the hypothetical, um, but I think, again, there's a lot we don't know about sexual transmission, particularly the risk of the possibility of transmission from um, women to men. So in closing, the um, California Department of Public Health has been working um, very closely with local vector control agencies, with local health departments, with academic partners uh, to respond to the threat of Zika virus to California residents. We've been working to disseminate information to the public and to healthcare providers about disease prevention and management of people who have been exposed or infected. We've been monitoring vector mosquitoes and cases of human disease. We've been facilitating laboratory testing at CDC, and now our laboratory is able to provide a diagnostic testing um, both for, with PCR and uh, serologic testing. Um, for Zika, we also offer uh, testing, diagnostic testing for um, dengue and chikungunya, as well as West Nile virus. And we are preparing for investigations and response to um, any instances of Zika virus infection in someone who has not traveled, and we expect that that will happen. And so we have plans in place, working in partnership with our local partners, um, to respond to that situation, to investigate and try to understand what's happening and limit any potential transmission uh, when we see that. So thank you very much.
Okay, we're doing very well on time. Um, thanks to the panelists for a very compelling set of presentations. During the lunch break, we, we had um, a press conference. And uh, at the end, uh, we were asked, uh, well, what is the headline? So we had about 30 milliseconds to respond. <laughs> well, the headline is, in my view, that SIC is here, and SIC is going to be here for a long time. But I think there are subheadings. There's a mix of good news, bad news, and really ugly news. I think um, the good news, as we have heard repeatedly, is that the risk of transmission in California, in the Bay Area, is very, very low. In continental U.S., we know there is a risk of transmission in some states. Um, but then there's bad news. Uh, we will have imported cases. We will continue to have imported cases with 40 million Americans traveling to seek endemic countries. Um, the huge anxiety in women that we heard uh, is something that is really concerning. And, and there, there are ugly, ugly news. We will have whole birth cohorts in South America, Central America, um, Caribbean of uh, microcephalic babies. Um, so I think um, this uh, policy uh, panel is most important to understand how we can better react to this uh, growing epidemic in the most uh, effective uh, way. So um, we're open for questions. Uh, Dr. Watt, it, it sounds like at this point then uh, serologic testing is now being performed in the California Department of uh, Public Health as opposed to be being sent out to the uh, National Centers for Disease Control. Is that, is that right? Yes. Um, we, we have an IgM um, assay available now, and we hope to have our um, uh, PRNT uh, neutralizing antibody test available very soon. We've been doing that for some time for West Nile and dengue, um, and because we knew that we had issues around cross-reactivity. Um, and so we, we have the methodology there. We just need to validate it. Thank you again. Uh, I, I feel compelled to run down the Olympics question. Um, you know, a huge black eye for Brazil. What, what would, Steph, if you were the Minister of Health in Brazil or the now being impeached president, uh, what would you, you know, how short a fuse would you have for, for canceling? Or if you were the IOC president, would you, would you look to cancel? I mean, I'm, very, I'm really curious about, you know, what the dynamics are of decisions, of a decision that might be like that, which would be the first time ever, really, except for wars. My daughter has been beating me up about this because the... Crew, the Crew Global Championship was held in Rio last year, and a huge proportion of the team got violently ill because of uh, what's in the water that the crew team races in. Um, but, you know, I, I'd be, I would be very surprised if that happens, and uh, I, would be, I would be 
not at all surprised that there are strong recommendations that women who are pregnant or seeking to become pregnant or not using effective contraception not attend the Olympics. Um, but I, I would find it very hard to believe, given the relatively low risk to other people, um, that they would cancel it, nor could I imagine if I were the advisor um, to the government that I would recommend that at this point. But, and the good thing is that pregnancy is a very uncommon event among Olympic athletes. I was just wondering um, what you think the timeline might be that we will start seeing um, screening as part of preconception counseling. <laughs> Claire, what do you answer first? We have So I, just, I said, I think we are going to need clinical access to IgG uh, testing to determine past immunity and, and past exposure. Also, we're going to have to understand the role of immunity and previous exposure in Zika virus. We're all sort of assuming it's going to behave the way other viruses behave in terms of uh, preventing severe illness during pregnancy, but there's certainly a role for that. This is what we do now for rubella in this country as a standard of care. There's lots of places that do this for things like cytomegalovirus and other kinds of infectious diseases like toxoplasmosis. It's not really standard of care in the United States, but in a lot of places it is. So I think before we can offer it routinely, there has to be clinical access to IgG testing, and there has to be knowledge that that immunity is actually protective. And you'd have to have uh, the capacity of the organizations to be able to provide the kind of counseling and services that go along with having that integration. So I think we would have to think about it as well as a consumer campaign of education. Again, many of the women who are coming in California are very good consumers. They're going to be exposed to reading or learning more from it from the websites. And I think they're going to be coming in with many more questions than they already are and really need guidance and support. And it may not be that it's the medical provider, but it might be a well-trained counselor or health educator to help guide the woman and her partner. But, but if, I think you'd agree, but this is, I'm curious, that the first thing that's likely to be available is an IgG test that's useful. And the second thing, from a timeline perspective, that's likely to be available is a broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibody or antibody cocktail that could be used, and the third most likely thing in timeline will be an effective vaccine. So if you're talking to a woman in Brazil about what her reproductive options are, um, it seems to me likely that that'll be the first thing that we get to, is serologic screening and um, women who decide that once they've been exposed, then they feel more comfortable reproducing, and that may well lead to women seeking to become infected in absence of a vaccine so that they can reproduce. I mean, I. I certainly think all those scenarios are plausible. Yeah, to, uh, Mike Bush, to both of those issues, um, I think the testing is, is actually fairly straightforward in, in people who live here or, and have traveled because they don't have the high level of background dengue exposure, which just completely confounds both the specificity of the assays and, and impacts the sensitivity. So the very populations that need tests, we don't have tests that, that can accurately diagnose antibody positivity. And the issue of passive antibody, whether it's neutralizing or IVIG, 
I mean, do we really have experience in pregnant women that, that infusing serial infusions of immunoglobulins during pregnancy doesn't have any adverse effect on fetal development? What would you do if it was your daughter? Not get her I mean, infected in the first place. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's one of those things where, of course, I, I take your point, but, you know, I certainly got shut up with IgG for hep A before I went to Africa the first time, and I wasn't a, a woman of reproductive age, obviously. Mm -hmm. But if I lived in Brazil and I had a choice between the possible negative effects of being injected with IgG versus the possibility of microcephaly, there's no question what I would choose. Yeah, it would have to be a hyperimmune globulin, presumably. Or I wanted to add a clarification because I've gotten several emails from my presentation really related to blood safety that the pathogen reduction approach here, which seems great, and, and in fact there are major advances by Cirrus and, uh, and Terumo, two companies, to develop broadly active methods to inactivate viruses in blood transfusions, which have proven extremely effective for immunoglobulins and other derivatives. Those have actually recently, the Cirrus technology was informed, has been approved by FDA and now can be used for platelets in plasma in Puerto Rico. So that's, that's a good development. Uh, but I think for, this sort of points to the policy side of, you know, we're willing to spend quite a bit of money to safeguard the blood supply, which is going to be, um, never has blood transfusion been more than a small contributor to transmission of any infectious disease. And yet we're willing to put a lot of resources to prevent that, and I've come to accept that because we don't want to be responsible for, as healthcare providers for infecting people, whereas there's a whole different economic perspective on trying to implement you know, broader public health measures to reduce transmission uh, from, from vectors or other community modes. And just curious as to whether people have a comment on the appropriateness of that dichotomy. Um, yes, I think uh, whatever we have discussed here in terms of policy is much easier to apply in a rich country uh, it will be much harder to apply the same guidelines in, in countries that just do not have the resources to do massive public health screening. Um, I think we're running out of time. I'll take the prerogative of the chair to ask uh, Claire and maybe Barbara a, a question that, um, Claire, you and I come from Latin American countries where the Catholic, Catholic Church has a huge presence, but now even the Pope seems to be flexible about uh, contraception. Um, do you think Zika will change uh, social norms uh, in Latin America as uh, a consequence of the epidemic? And uh, Barbara, I would be curious about your reaction as well. It's uh, very interesting to have a fellow Argentinian uh, speak about uh, contraceptives as the pope of the, of the, of the world. Um, I think that even having an informal conversation that he brought it up as part of a, speaking to some newspaper reporters on his airplane going back to Rome, I think it opens up conversation. I mean, there are many, many Catholic women living throughout Latin America including in Mexico and Central America and South America, who in spite of the Catholic Church do seek contraceptive care. And so we do know that there's contraceptive coverage in many, many of these countries. The challenge I think here is even if he softens the stand, the stand on abortion is a very firm, abortion, a very firm stand. 
And we know now that there's still many, many women who seek illegal and often very, very dangerous abortions. So I think he's going to be one of the voices, but I don't think he's the only voice that, Ameri- that uh, the women in Latin America listen to. Um, and I would have to say I don't have a clue as to whether it will um, actually change social norms. There are, in addition to Catholicism, there is also a growing um, Pentecostal evangelical um, sort of force throughout all of Latin America, too, which may be arguing in the same direction. But I think the bigger issue will be what happens with um, with this sort of uh, particular population of, of affected children and what will be the impact of their birth. And we don't know that yet. Um, and how, how they'll be accepted. Perhaps they'll be accepted quite well. That, that's not clear at all. Um, please join me in thanking the panelists. Uh, and may I ask uh, Sir Richard Feacham to provide concluding remarks. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I have learnt a lot today. Hands up, those of you who have learnt a lot today. I think so. It's been quite remarkable. We've had a stellar constellation of experts from Berkeley, the California Department of Public Health, Davis, Stanford, and of course UCSF. And they have really educated us from their various disciplinary perspectives on the current situation and future prognosis for Zika. So I want to suggest a big round of applause for all the presenters. Thank you. And I also want to convey special thanks to Chancellor Sam Horgood for having the big idea of this Zika symposium and to Jaime Sepulveda, Mary Wilson, Colin Boyle, Daisy Leo, and many others at Global Health Sciences for actually making this happen. So thanks to them as well. Now, I will not try. Well, firstly, I stand between you all and a cup of tea, which is a very uncomfortable situation for someone with my accent. But I will not try and summarize what we've learned about Zika. That would be too difficult. Um, I want to rather address the bigger context. And the bigger context has come up periodically during the day. And I want to try and pull that a little bit more together. And I think the bigger context has two major components. The first one is health systems and healthcare delivery, which has come up during the day. It was Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary of the USA, who said that Ebola was the stress test for health systems in West Africa, and they failed. 
And building on what Claire told us, I think Zika will be the stress test for reproductive health services in Latin America, and they will generally fail. And we're very conscious of the fact that response to pandemics, whether it's Zika or something else, is highly dependent country by country on the strength of healthcare delivery and the strength of the health system. And in California, we are mo the most fortunate people on the planet, and we will do well and our systems will stand up. But around the world, things look very different. And so a huge priority over the next decades is surely the strengthening of health systems and the strengthening of healthcare delivery. The second big context is pandemics and pandemic preparedness. Uh, and I want to concentrate my brief remarks um, on that subject, pandemics and pandemic preparedness. Homo sapiens, us, um, is no stranger to pandemics, stretching back for thousands of years, some of them very well documented. We've had plague and cholera and measles and smallpox and flu and many others. But we now live in a new age of pandemics for which we are very poorly prepared. And I think there are four main causes of our current vulnerability to pandemics. And these have been somewhat mentioned during the day. The first cause is just our population numbers. If you go back to the 1300s, which as you will recall was the big century for the bubonic plague, there were 0.4 billion, 0.4 billion of us on the planet. If you go back to 1918, the last really big flu pandemic, there were 1.8 billion of us on the planet. And in 2016, there are 7.4 billion of us on the planet. And that is very good news for pandemics and very bad news for us. There are just too many of us. We are too crowded. And human-animal contact is too much and too frequent. Second, as has been mentioned, the speed of travel. So 500 years ago, to get to the other side of the world would take you about a year and you'd have a very high probability of not arriving at all, which was very pandemic reducing. Today, we can be anywhere in the world in 24 hours and air travel is one of the safest modes of travel we are very likely to arrive. Good for, good for pandemic uh, spread. Thirdly, as has been referred to, and I want to update the numbers on this, we travel with absurd frequency. 500 years ago, most people didn't travel at all. They stayed in their village, in their valley, and in their town. They went nowhere during their entire lives. But in 2016, it is estimated that there will be 3.7 billion individual air journeys. Now, you might be thinking, does that mean that half the population of the world are going to travel once on an airplane? And of course, it doesn't mean that. It means that Stefano and Jaime are going to travel three billion times during the year, <laughs> and the rest of us will make up the 0.7. And of those 3.7 billion air journeys, a full 1.5 billion of them are international, again, of special significance for pandemics. And the fourth significant factor is antimicrobial resistance. 
through our own actions, through our farming actions and our medical actions, we are creating more and more super-resistant bacteria, some of which have pandemic potential or are already pandemic. And of course, looming is a fifth factor, which has been referred to, which is climate change, which will also increase pandemic potential, particularly for mosquito-borne pandemics such as Zika. So how have we reacted in recent years uh, to this new age of pandemics and this new vulnerability in which we find ourselves? We've had HIV, we've had SARS, we've had MERS, we've had Ebola, we've had H1N1, and we've had a number of others. And now we have Zika. And each time, we are shocked and surprised Look at the reaction to Zika, shock and surprise. Each time we are caught off guard, each time we scramble to appropriate, President Obama is scrambling to appropriate a couple of billion dollars right now. And each time we mount a response which is typically too little and too late. And we're gonna do it again with Zika. And the risks ahead are much larger than anything we have experienced since 1918. We fear particularly a virus that combines two key properties. One is high transmission among humans, easy transmission among humans, and the second is a high case fatality rate in humans. And recently, as you will know, we've had two very near misses on those particular counts. Firstly, in 2009, we had H1N1, starting in Mexico, possibly. It was in 120 countries in 10 weeks. It was in 120 countries from a single point of origin in 10 weeks. It was highly transmissible, but it was not especially deadly. So we got away with it. That was not the big one. But then in 1997, when Margaret Chan was running the health system of Hong Kong, we had H5N1 which has been reported from only 17 countries in the last 19 years, less than one country a year. So clearly not very transmissible at all, but very, very lethal. 53% of known H5N1 cases have died. 53% of known cases have died. And what we fear, of course, which will certainly happen, it's not a question of if, it's only a question of when, is the combination of the high transmissibility and the high case fatality rate, which various estimates suggest will result in something between 100 million and 200 million excess deaths, 100 million to 200 million excess deaths worldwide, with poorer countries being more affected than richer countries, obviously, and economic losses measured in the trillions. And we are unprepared for this. So what is to be done? Well, I think it's rather apparent that we need a global CDC. We need a CDC for the world in order to be better prepared and be able to take the appropriate action when pandemic after pandemic after pandemic starts to threaten us. And some will say, that we have a CDC for the world, and it's called the World Health Organization. But the World Health Organization over the last few years has a pretty dismal record. 
in responding to um, pandemics, particularly Ebola, on which it's being much investigated. Could WHO be re-engineered to play the role of a global CDC effectively? Maybe, but many doubt it. And so a new multilateral pandemic preparedness and response capacity must be created, and it must be created quickly. And the longer we delay, the more we will be knocked over by pandemic after pandemic after pandemic. So to conclude, pandemics are the global health issue with the biggest mismatch between, on the one hand, the level of risk and the magnitude of the consequence, which is huge, and on the other hand, the level of investment and the state of preparedness, which is somewhere on a scale between modest and pathetic right now. And our response must be global and collective, as some of the speakers referred to. No country, not even the USA, can protect itself unilaterally from pandemics. There's much talk on television every evening about the building of walls. <laughs> walls won't do it for pandemics, or anything else for that matter, but they certainly won't do it for pandemics. So let's not think of walls. Let's think of collective action with the other nations of the world, because only that will be effective. All countries and people are in this together. We will either all sink or we will all swim, and swimming is preferable. There is much that we and those watching uh, can do. We are not powerless by any means. We can research, as many in this room are doing. We can write, we can teach, we can make the evidence known, and we can vote. Don't forget voting. In particular, we have the opportunity soon for vote for a president who firstly will listen to the science will take account of the scientific evidence. And secondly, who has the diplomatic and foreign policy skills to build a coalition of nations to be prepared for pandemics. And that coalition must include China and India and Indonesia and Russia and South Africa and Nigeria and Mexico and Brazil and many others. But those countries that I mentioned must be included a coalition which will unleash collective commitment, collective investment, and collective action that is necessary to fight pandemics. So I leave you with the final thought. On November the 8th, think pandemics, think Zika. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming today. Uh, for those who are uh, not here uh, but watching on live stream, uh, the YouTube channel of UCSF will host uh, this video, and so please you can go back and reference it there. In addition, the presentations from today's uh, symposium will be made available on a website, on the Global Health Sciences website shortly. And so uh, if you have any questions, you can find uh, the presentations there. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.